This is a conversation with George Chidi, a journalist who writes about crime and politics. We discuss his path to journalism, from dropping out of college and joining the military to writing for a small North Carolina paper, to getting an MBA at the absolute worst time you could have possibly gotten an MBA, to joining the Occupy movement. We also talk about the intersection of crime and hip-hop, how he knew the YSL indictment was coming, ways labels benefit from the violence, and how the violence can be stopped. We also talk about the ADOS slash FBA community, American descendants of slavery slash foundational Black Americans, and whether it's fair for African immigrants to benefit from policies like affirmative action. We talk about the online Reddit communities as well, like Shireacology, Atlantology, and PhillyWiki, which chronicle crime and the hip-hop industry in their respective cities. It's a fun, wide-ranging conversation. I really enjoyed it. I hope you do too. And if you do, make sure to rate, review, like, share, comment, and all that. Here's George Chidi. Mike, can you hear me? Am I all right? Oh, yeah. You sound very, you sound great. You sound great. All right. Good stuff. Um, Yeah, I'm very excited to get into your whole, you know, everything. I think that, you know, obviously you're sort of known for the YSL stuff, but you have, like when I was kind of researching you, you have a whole, you're in the army. (laughs) That's very, that's, uh, those people uh, think they're shooters. They're, they're real shooters in the army. (laughs) Yes, there are. Um, But it's been a long time. Um, I'm, I am feeling the 25 years it's been since I was a soldier. Okay. It's well, let me, let me, let me give you a proper introduction. Um, so George Cheedy is a journalist and columnist who focuses on politics, music, culture, and crime. He writes a column for Decaturish.com, and he has written for publications including the Atlanta Journal of Constitution, Atlanta Magazine, The Guardian, Vice, Computer World, The Bitter Southerner, which is a great name, and CNN.com. He began his journalism career as an enlisted U.S. Army news reporter covering infantry training in the Pacific with the 25th Infantry Division. George holds a journalism degree from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and an MBA from Georgia Tech. George is also a former city councilman for the city of Pine Lake, uh, Pine Lake, I guess, Georgia, population 733. Um, George is perhaps best known for his excellent coverage of the YSL RICO case. His speedy, detailed, and accurate report accurate reporting has earned him multiple appearances on Vlad TV and other platforms too. Um, Chidi currently operates a Substack called the Atlanta Objective, which covers the city's true crime beyond the headlines and offers discussion of public policy. Um, that that did that do you justice? That is that is a very accurate. That's well done. I appreciate you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Well, you know, it's it's funny. Like I always feel awkward. Like when, if someone like reading out your accomplishments, it, it feels kind of awkward, you know. Yeah, I'm getting used to it at this point. And I say that I'm sort of smiling. I'm having a really good year. You are. Like, I'm, I'm getting a lot of attention, and I think the important thing is making sure that I use that attention to help people be uh, have a better society. That is a good wait. Is there any is there any chance you could close that that shade there that that light coming in? So I've got a, a ring light going. Like, oh, okay. oh, I see. I see. Oh, oh no, 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 the that's ring light. The, the yeah, ring light. Ring light. Uh, I don't think I, there's nothing I can do about the shade, unfortunately. Okay, no worries, no worries. All right. Um. So yeah, you you are having a great year, and I want to talk about that. Okay, I have a few questions. First of all, um, let's see. Where do I start? Let me put on my charger. Um. Oh, wait a second. Yeah. It's all right. Okay. So, first question. I see that the city of Pine, uh, the city that you were a um, a councilman at, 
They yep. lost their, their population went from 752 to 733 from 2021 <laughs> to 2022. So what happened there? Like what, you know, what do you think uh, was there, you know, what was the great migration of Pine Lake? Like what caused Like I, I think part of it is just um, pe- families are becoming smaller. Pine Lake is still this weird legacy of um, Pine Lake used to be uh, very white. And it's becoming very much less white over the over the years. It's in the middle of DeKalb County. It is surrounded by ninety five percent black people, uh, but the city itself is racially mixed now. And as the old timers in in town die, like and their families move away, they tend to be replaced by smaller families. And I'm, honestly, I think that's just what's happening. Okay. All right. That, that's, that's a good, I was, I was wondering, I was like, was there, you know, what happened? Uh, it's just a, it's a big, a little outflow. And then okay. um, what made you run for city council? Uh, cops, strangely enough, the irony. Um, Pine Lake has a long history, a long uh, reputation for being a speed trap. That it was, it was known for years and years and years as a place you didn't drive through fast. And that most of the folks who they were uh, ticketing were black people who were driving through town. And like the people kept talking about it and there was a tax issue going on. And I'm like, by God, I'm I. All right. If I'm going to live here, I need to take a watch. Like the city is so small that eventually everybody ends up being on the city council at some point. Oh, um, <laughs> that's good. It's, um, it's no, I got on the city council to make sure that the police, the police department, was towing the line and doing the things they were supposed to do. Were you um, able and to? They are, and it's good. So you were able to affect change, you know, as a citizen. I think so. Like the city no longer owns a speed gun. Like they haven't given out a speeding ticket in almost a decade. Well, if there's an accident, will you feel a little bit guilty? No, like because accidents happen, and honestly, the accident rate there is also really low. Um, like the, they really weren't giving out tickets because of like worried about accidents. It was they're a revenue trying, generating. Yeah, they're, they're they're trying to meet a quota. Yeah, so that's interesting. So I want to get into the YSL, the streets. I, I have a lot of thoughts about music in the streets. I have a little bit of firsthand experience in that stuff. I want to get into all that, but first, like the way I want to frame this conversation is, you know. I think that, you know, there's there's somewhere out there, there's going to be somebody who sees you, you know, all the attention you're getting and sees you, you know, whether it's on Vlad TV, on Twitter, and it's like, oh, I want to do what he does, right? And so I want them to be able to, you know, listen to this and see how you got there, like how your path, you know, from Amherst, how you got into journalism, you know. Man, you- if I could clone myself, I would do it right now. I don't need to be the guy writing about this stuff. <laughs> well, you've, you've become the guy writing about this. Yeah, but so first I want to like, Look at it through that lens of like, okay, like if someone's watching this and they say, "Hey, I want to be, yeah, you know, I want to do what he does." Also, first of all, the caterish that they they come up with that name before or after Blackish? Uh, it was before. Okay, okay, fair. Yeah, they've been um, around for a while. Okay, good, good. Um, so yeah, I I I want someone out there who's listening because I've been in positions where like people have said, "Oh, like you do whatever you know." So I, you know, whether whether it was when I was writing for Blackish or just you know other things, it's like, "Oh, how'd you get do that?" And like. You know, I can give certain advice, like there's certain books that are really good if you want to be a, t- a screenwriter, you know, TV, film. But I kind of, you know, I, I had a unique path that's not as easily transferable. So I want, I, I like to, th- but, but, you know, everything I've ever done career-wise, I've found people who were doing that thing and then asked them, how did you do that? And then kind of followed what they, you know, trying to follow what they did. So I think I want to, you know, I want to know how you kind of, you know, came 
you know, what, like, when did you get the journalism bug? Did you write for your high school paper and all that? And then later I do eventually want to get to the YSL, Rico stuff and, and, and everything else. All right. I'll give you the abbreviated version here. Um, the, uh, let's start with this. Like I have been a screw up in the past. Like, um, journalism is, is as good place as any to, for redemption. Uh, I, so I failed out of college. I was, um, biochemistry major failed a bunch of classes and I'm looking to looking to better myself. And uh, I decided to join the army and I figured I would go be a legal clerk in the army. Um, a, a JAG, right? That's what they yeah, call it. Yeah. Like, but like one of the enlisted guys do, do a few years in the army, get out, get the college fund, finish college, go to law school. And what college was it that you dro- uh, dropped out of? UMass. So I'm at the recruiting station and they are alphabetically going through the list um, of all of the army professions. Um, And they sort of lingered on uh, like infantry, like, do you want to be an infantryman? Because they're the ones who like go do the, you know, the Green Beret stuff and just get get to L, get to L for legal legal specialist. (laughs) Like, and then they stop again at J for journalist. And I'm like, journalists? Do you have journalists in the army? I, by the way, I was 18. So, like, this is all the thought that went into this. Yeah, we have journalists in the army. Well, what's it take to be a journalist in the army? And it says, do you have two years of high school English? Yes. Uh, can you type 20 words a minute? Yes. Are you colorblind? No. You qualify. Wow. And I'm like, really? It's just like that? Yeah. Like this slot's going away though. There aren't a lot of journalists in the army. If you don't pick this up now, you won't be able to get it later. And not to date yourself too much, but what, what year, like around what year was this? This was 1991. Okay. Uh, So so that's like, that's around the time of like the Gulf war, right? Like you're not like, you're like, I always think about the people who enlisted after nine 11. I'm like, you're enlisting. You know, there's one thing about enlisting when there's no conflict, but like enlisting when you know, you know, shit might hit the fan. Is it, it, it takes another. Yeah, it's funny. Time. I I was initially enlisting as a reservist, and my reserve unit was actually in the Gulf War. Um, and they came back ten days before I finished training. Um, the uh, and then they deactivated, and I had a switch. Like the the irony is that I didn't actually start practicing journalism in the army until 1994 when I went full time. Um, for two years, I was a cavalry scout. Um, those are the guys that accompany tanks, uh, in order to find, um, other cavalry scouts and kill them. Oh, wow. Um, but I never, I, I've never seen combat. Um, the, you're like, uh, you're like, you're like P. Buttigieg. Yeah, kind of. Uh, it's weirdly. So, um, I went, I joined the army full time in 1994 and I joined not as a journalist, but as a linguist. And I spent a year at the language Institute learning Arabic. Um, didn't make it all the way through the program. I had a death in my family. It, uh, it, um, interfered with training. Uh, yeah, I had to recycle out and they're like, or you could just go be a journalist in the army for the next four years. And I'm like, uh, okay, let's go. Where do you want to send me? Hawaii. Okay. That sounds nice. Really? No. Hawaii. No. What's the, what's the trick here? No, you're going to Hawaii and you're going to go with the 25th infantry division for four years. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm doing laps. Like around the back when I could do laps, um, <laughs> you can you can still do it. Yeah. So, like, the army is a really good place to actually learn how to be a journalist. Except it's not always journalism. 
A lot of it is public affairs, public relations bullshit. Um, but it's a good place to learn how to write because they can't fire you. Um, <laughs> and so I spent uh, four years there. I spent six months while I was there in Egypt uh, as a peacekeeper along the Egyptian-Israeli border uh, on a peacekeeping mission. Um, spent some time in Thailand and Japan and wrote a lot about like how uh, the army works. Well, uh, so you, but as a as a writer and as a journalist in the army, you still have to like go through basic training and like. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, no, I'm an expert rifleman. You're armed, uh, right? yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I could. I still. Sh- I can still shoot. I mean, that's the one thing that doesn't really go away. Uh, although you have to stay, you have to keep practicing. Anyway, so I, I did five years total. Um, accumulated about half of the college credits I needed to graduate from college while I was there and finished school. Um, and then I spent a couple of years writing about computers in Boston during the dot-com crash uh, and uh, left my job to for go what public- For what publication uh, was the... So it was called the IDG News Service, which is uh, it's a, a wire service that supported computer world, network world, and info world, and the other world worlds. Um, and I spent a lot of time writing about telecommunications and networking stuff, um, like uh, AT and T and some hacking, um, and a lot of financial scandal. Um, uh, I left my job in 2002 to go run for uh, a seat in the Massachusetts legislature. Uh, I was 27, something like that. Um, I was extremely angry about. Uh, election corruption issues in Massachusetts. Uh, I ran as an independent and I did it because I wanted to make a point. Well, you know, and the, I got, the, so yeah. not, sorry to cut you off, but the, the Massachusetts, um, that was probably around the time the, I think the head of the assembly or whatever was the brother of Whitey Bulger. Uh, and that like was he, correct. He yeah. The, state, the head of the state Senate was, is Billy, was Billy Bulger at the time. Um, and the state's legislature was, troubled. It's still kind of troubled. Uh, there's just a lot of like machine politics and whatnot. And, and I'm, look, I'm a progressive guy. Like I'm a Democrat today, but at the moment, like I'm, I ran as an independent and I got like 11% of the vote. Um, so you're blank you're the, ballots. You're, got, what? you're the spoiler candidate. You're the candidate that everyone blamed. The, like, oh, he stole our votes, probably. Yeah, no, I wasn't quite like that. Blank's got 13 percent of the vote, and the other guy got the rest. And he served for 30 years. Like it was an open seat. He served for 30 years, and it turns out they were 30 good years. Like Jeffrey Sanchez, like representing Jamaica Plain in Boston, was a really talented politician, and I'm actually glad he won. The food in Jamaica Plain is really good. I, I spent four years in uh, Massachusetts, so uh, Dorchester, uh-huh. Roxbury. I never, I never really ventured outside of Cambridge, but Rox, Roxbury, uh, Dorchester. You know, the, uh, but I remember there's this. I, I, I can never remember the name of it, but there's this amazing Caribbean place, and there, there's a really big Haitian population out there. You're, yeah, there is. What's your What's your ethnicity? You're. So my father is Nigerian, oh, and okay. my mother is French Canadian and Polish, like Mass- middle Massachusetts person. Your dad must uh, be Igbo. He's Igbo, right? I, I guess. Yes, yes, yeah, yes, yes. Um, and uh, so, I, I mean, my sort of ethnic and family background is is odd. My parents split up when I was young. Um, I was living on Mass in California before they split up, and then I ended up in Massachusetts. 
Um, which is why I sound like this. It's why I sound like uh, Albert Brooks, like the dad from Finding Nemo. Like I know, I know who I am. I know what I sound like. I'm learning to live with it. Well, you, you sound. Uh, you have a good voice. You could you could narrate. Uh, you could narrate. You can narrate books. Well, we're in California. Uh, mostly the Bay Area, Danville, Oakland, that area. Okay. Um. So very. Okay. So yep. sorry. So you're so Sanchez wins. You 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 run. You get eleven percent of the vote. Uh, you're twenty seven, yep. and then yeah. But I'm also out of journalism for a little bit. Like, and so I'm. I spent a couple of years like substitute teaching English at the local middle school and working as a security guard and trying to figure out what to do. Spent about a year doing that. Did, and then I'm like, I've got to be a journalist again. I'm just bad at everything else. Uh, <laughs> so I took the first crappy journalism job I could find in a state with a good public MBA program thinking I'll spend a year, get um, established residency and then go get an MBA and see what I can do. Um, Because I knew a lot of stuff about business from my time writing about technology. Um, And I ended up in Rocky Mount, North Carolina, which is Eastern North Carolina it is economically depressed and has been for probably 30 or 40 years now, uh, racially divided in ways that I had never seen, not even in the army um, and Southern. And I'd never lived in the South before. Was, um, was, there, was there a lot of, so I think sometimes we think of racial division as synonymous with racism, but sometimes racial division, I mean, and I, that's why I want, like, was it, cause sometimes racial division is kind of like can lead to hegemony, right? Cause People are kind of with their own. Like, there's no, no. Like, there's no beef. That is an astute observation. I could not agree with you more. Um, there was sort of like the train tracks run through the middle of town. Black people on one side, and mostly white, but not exclusively white people on the other. One side of the tracks was super poor, and the other was super rich. Not super rich. They were middle class and upper middle class. Um, fascinating place and I need to go back um, and I got very very lucky in that I met a couple of people who saw this northern city slicker biracial writer from Boston land in their city um, and decided that I was not necessarily like the enemy and uh, an old Oh, when I say old, he'd been mayor for 30 years and lived there for 30 years before that. Yeah, older, old, old white guy. Uh, yeah, uh, the mayor of the town. Right. Um, a Democrat who's understood how to bridge the gap. And he he and I would spend uh, a couple of hours a week, actually, after city council meetings, just talking about what life was like there and what was going on and like what who was credible and who wasn't and what was problematic in what wasn't. Uh, Mayor uh, Fred Turnage, um, he died about 10 years ago. And uh, Turnage, uh, I have to give a lot of credit to him for making me a much better journalist than I am today. Um, uh, The other was uh, a fellow named Knight, uh, who was a city councilman there, and young. He's my age at the time. I was like 30-something. Firebrand. and uh, very concerned about racism. Well, so okay, was, this, is, this is in Rocky Mount, right? Yeah, this um, is in Rocky Mount, right? And explained in sort of detail exactly how Southern racism actually worked, 
like and like the degree to which people trusted or distrusted others, um, like what to look for, what was real and what was nonsense. Um, and without those two guys, I would have been useless. I would have been damaging. And it's actually something that's really rattled around in my head over the last 20 some odd years is that it is very easy for a journalist with preconceived notions about what the South is and what race is to be, to do more harm than good as a journalist. Um, Oh yeah. You can stoke racial tensions. You can stoke racial divisions. You can, you can cherry pick and find stories that confirm, you know, you can, you can, I mean, journalists, it's funny that something that you said that's, you know, well, two things. One, J. Cole has this line, speaking of the whole house, you know, how division can sometimes be better. I won't say better, but be okay. He says, sometimes I feel, sometimes I think that segregation would have done us better. He has that line in a for your eyes only, which I always thought I'm a funny, you know, and people sometimes will joke on Twitter, like, oh, well, we had our own pools. We had our, you know, black Americans. (laughs) We had our own pools. We had had our own uh, water fountains. Why did you have to go and ruin it? And the other thing, you know, we talked about about um, talking about journalism. You said something, you said something like ten minutes ago that like uh, there's uh, journalism is, a, is as good a place for redemption as any. And I, I actually very much disagree with that. At least today, I think journalists well, are often, you know, the whole you know cancel culture and stuff. Like we'll we'll go and like you know the, like kind of take down and hit pieces. Like it seems like journalists are very much like hall monitors. Like at least today, like in a post Trump world, there's this sort of like desire to go and seek out like you know you know like I mean. A th- like some sort of thing that you did 10 years ago or five, you know, something to like bring people down. Um, I, it seems like journalists are often like anti-redemption or maybe it's, it seems like a, more of a progressive thing, but like. Well, when I say redemption, I mean redemption for ger- for people who need to find a, a place in society because they're not doing well at other things. Oh, okay. Like, like well, yeah, are, that's true. Yeah. I think- yeah, yeah be, be a failed, like, uh, like if you're trying to get into law school and you can't do it, or you're trying to get into medical school and you can't do it, you're smart but you uh, can't figure out what to do. There is a place for you as a writer. Like if you are capable of honest observation of the world around you. Okay, yeah, that's that's okay. That's fair. That's a type. That's a different type of redemption. I, I agree with that. I think that um, especially back then, I feel like nowadays the arts or just media is kind of often a place that people go who have kind of connections because media you can kind of. Like a lot of media jobs, you, you're not getting paid much or even at all to start out with. So it kind of, if you have kind of parents who can foot the bill, then you can kind of go and do different things. Um, so, but I think you know maybe 20 years ago it was more of a working class sort of you know profession. Yeah, today it's, I don't know what the hell. Like honestly, uh, like the path for a 20 year year old or somebody coming out of college um, is just very. It's always been hard, but it's especially hard right now. Um, you really need to know something more than just how to write. Well, um, you, need, you need to know somebody. <laughs> yeah, it helps. And that's terrible. But that's also true for so much of the world right now, uh, in and out of journalism. And it's a crime. It's actually the biggest single problem I can think of, uh, especially for the black community, because we don't know as many people. Oh, I mean, that's so that's one of the reasons. I mean, there are a few reasons why I want to start this podcast, but I think that like, you know, when I was in college, I was like, okay, I want to, I've always mentioned in business. So I'm like, oh, I want to, I met kids who were kind of doing like investment banking in the summer. I was like, okay, like, how do you become, how do you do that? And I met people who were TV writers, like, okay, how do you do that? But it's like, not everyone has, like, I, so I don't like, I don't think representation is everything, but I think that 
like I don't think of representation is like, oh, if you see somebody in a movie, then then that helps you somehow. But I do think representation in your immediate life, like if you like if you if, like if I know someone who's a doctor, if I know someone who's a lawyer, if I know somebody who does some sort of profession, then like I can reach out and touch it, and they can also tell me, okay, like how did you do that? Like how did you become that? So I want I do that's why I want to bring people in like you who have these different paths. And it's like okay, like how did you get there? Um, but yeah, I agree. I think that you know there's the, the lack of you know the lack of a safety net and the lack of knowing like you know what. What 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 can be possible, right? Um, is something that you know when you don't have uh, connections. Um, but okay, so you're at Rocky Mount. You meet these two people. Um, yeah, so I'm at Rocky Mount. I win some awards. I write about some stuff. Uh, what, what's the publication? Are you freelancing, or what's what's the publication? No, no, that was the Rocky Mount Telegram. Um, and the Rocky Mount Telegram was owned at the time by Cox Communications, which also well, also owns the Atlanta Journal Constitution. Yeah, I mean, they, what, and, what what don't they own? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Um, although they're starting to divest their other newspapers. I think they're just going to be down to the four big ones when they're done. Um, so they saw my stuff and they hired me. And it was the first time they'd hired anybody from a, a paper that small in forever. Um, met some other very good people at the AJC, some very solid editors who improved me. And that's the Atlanta um, Journal Constitution, by the way. Correct. Yeah. And I really, and I thought, Long, like I'd vi- <laughs> I had visited Atlanta once, and that day happened to like the time I had visited here happened to be nine eleven. I was covering a trade show that they were holding in uh, at the uh, Georgia Dome. What was the and trade? Was stuck, uh, it was a, a network plus interop. It was a network like telecommunications trade show. And so I I was stuck here for five days, and I'm looking around like Atlanta's really great. Like, and look at all the black people with money, like where it's normalized, where I don't feel weird, like walking around. It's not that I had money, but I mean, it was oh, this I- idea that you could be an educated professional in a place like this and be black. And there was a community here. Um, yeah. I mean, that's so real. I, I was going to, I went to San Francisco a couple of times recently um, uh, for like work or just in general. And I remember just getting off the plane and being like, there's like no black people here. Like there's, yeah. there just aren't really. And I remember I was walking down the street and like, uh, like kind of like an auntie-ish black woman like was driving and it was like she said something about like oh, she's like oh you're so, you're so fine like and i was like i was like wow that's I'm, you know i mean men are rarely complimented on, on their appearance i think and like you know yeah. one compliment can last us like a decade and so i was like oh wow, that's amazing but i remember thinking like is, it, is that just because there are no black people here you know like they're just like huh. just, my first thought getting off the airplane was like there's like no black people here and then i went to, I went to oakland you know during both both trips and like you get off and like you're in a different universe like you get off that stop and you're like oh like yeah. whoa like you know, the first thing I saw when I got to Oakland was like a, a crazy car with like the loudest stereo you could imagine, like somebody bumping. Right, you know, right. like, so yeah, like the, there is something about like seeing, you know, like looking around, seeing people who look like you. Like there's, like, you, yeah. get, you feel more comfortable just, just you know, in, in general. So I had two offers at the time, and like the uh, Raleigh paper, the Raleigh News and Observer had offered offered me a job at the same time that the AJC did. The AJC had more money, but it was also Atlanta, and I'm like, all right, I think I'm here. Um, and it was good for about a year. Um, uh, I was writing about business. I was writing about like real estate development in Gwinnett County, uh, which is in a relatively affluent, some, like racially diverse. Wait, very, that, very that's where the Migos. Place. That's where the Migos are from. That's, and uh, that's where the Migos were. One of my college um, uh, roommates uh, grew up in Stone Mountain, like Gwinnett, Stone Mountain, that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a great community. Um. And then the AJC was going through hell at the time and scrambled everybody's beats. And I ended up writing about crime 
for the next two years. And I didn't really want to. I never really focused on it at all. But I knew that it was one of those things that you're in a newspaper, newspapers write a lot of crime stuff. I'm going to write some crime for a while. And I hated it. But the problem was I was also good at it. And because I was good at it, they were never going to let me stop. So what made you good at it? Empathy. Empathy was like, that is almost the beginning and the end of it. Empathy and a particular kind of skepticism for authority. Uh, Cops I've lie. Seen, I've seen empathy in your work too, because I feel like, you know, when you talk about the Y, and we'll get to that, but like the YSL Rico stuff, you're like, you want, you talk about how people are like, oh, free my, you know, free my N-word. You know, I, I don't want to, well, anyone can curse, but my parents are going to listen to this and, and like get annoyed. But, you know, people like free my homie, whoever. It's like, well, this dude like killed three people. And you say, you don't right. want free my homie, you want justice. And if justice is freeing him, then that's justice. But, you know, you, you have a, an, another thing that you always say in, when you talk to Vlad and stuff, you say that like, these, like, even if you killed, like, a, like, even if the victims are criminals, they deserve justice too. You have, like, a certain level of empathy for, for everyone involved, which I think is, is very rare. I think it's important, um, in part because I'm not trying to be, I'm not trying to be the cops here, like, but I also don't want to be, like, my rule is to take the side of whoever has the least amount of power in a, in an equation. And when I'm looking at everybody who's involved with all of this stuff, and yes, the state is more powerful than the guys from YSL. YSL, like the people who are dying or died, um, like they're poor and they're black and they're disenfranchised and they're dispossessed. Like we weren't talking about rich people getting killed here. Oh, not generally. Well, we'll, yeah, I want to save that for well, the we'll second. Get to that. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to but, that. Well, yeah, but I, I also, right. I do want to say Rocky Mount. I, so I went to a high school, I went to a boarding school in Virginia. And I just have to say the, the one thing I love about that area of the country, the seasons are so amazing. Like fall looks like fall. Like you've got the leaves, they're like yeah. brown, like, uh, you know, winter is winter. It's not winter is wintry, but it's not that that cold, harsh kind of New England winter or, or like a Chicago winter. And then you know, it, it snows, but it's like kind of it's it's nice snow. It's not like kind of yeah. you're not like you're not freezing to death. And then you know, uh, fall and then what? Oh, and then spring is just gorgeous. Like spring is just beautiful. Like it's really like you know. And then this, I was never really there for the summer because I would go back home. But you know, summer's obviously nice too. But yeah, I, I love like how like that mid Atlantic area. Like it, I feel like it's it's kind of like an ignore. Everyone thinks about New York, L A. Uh, the South a little bit, and then um, you know I guess, but normally and even maybe Atlanta, but no one really ever thinks about like that. Like it is DC, but no one really ever thinks about like that Virginia, North Carolina, even even like South Carolina. It's a beautiful, like beautiful part of the country. I agree, and I mean especially like Eastern North Carolina is beautiful, and it's beautiful most of the time. Um, the one thing while I was there that I really didn't, that I'd had no real experience with before that was the kind of breathtaking rural poverty that I saw um, that like Edgecombe County in particular is one of the poorest counties in the United States. Like to get, to get to counties that have less money per capita, you've got to go to places like rural New Mexico. And, and what, um, what's the racial makeup of Edgecombe? Uh, uh, it's about 80, 20 black to white, give or take. Um, Latinos who are there tend to be farm workers, not basically no Asian folks. Um, There is a small but significant native population that's held on. Um, The uh, it's an, it's a fascinating place. I really do need to go back. 
But here I am at the AJC and I'm miserable and I'm writing about serial killers and white women getting killed. Um, and like that last one was actually the thing that put me over the top. There was a terrible, there was a, a terrible serial killer who killed uh, a young woman who was a recent U- University of Georgia graduate. And the world opened up to look at this case and CNN and Fox News and international media because everybody's looking for the body in the woods. And I get relatively close to their family relatively quickly because I'm not a jerk and realize that like, this is the thing that my father is going to see as he, like for the first time, my work as a journalist in the national media is going to be this, this story. You've got to be kidding me. Um, and like, I, I uh, applied for like the MBA program at Georgia Tech the next day. Um, so wait, did they find got, did they find the body? Like what? Yes, what was they the, did, and okay. she was decapitated. Oh my! And um, and it was a, it was an honest to god serial killer. He'd killed a bunch of other people too. They caught they him. Caught him. Okay. And he's in jail, and he'll never get out. Well, so it's fine. So I, I have so I have a friend. Like I, I, I it's interesting that you say that kind of weighs on your spirit because I, I have I have a friend who is a, a nurse, and I remember she, like at one point I think when I met her she was in the. And I see you, and then I think she maybe moves to the ICU. But I was talking to her like the other day, and I was like, "Oh wait, were you?" In, I was asking her if she was in the ICU or the NICU, and I was like, "You know, don't you ever?" Like, I, was, I was talking about how you know people in the medical field kind of get desensitized because you're seeing death and destruction all the time. She's like, "Oh, well, it's not that much," you know. So she, I was like, "She's like, well, they don't all die." I'm like, "Well, like one, like one dead baby is probably enough for me." <laughs> you know, she's like, "Well, they don't all die." And I'm like, uh, "Like even if like I saw, you know, I had to deal with you know one." Because I, like, I was like, I was saying like I was saying that the, I'm sure the NICU is sadder than the ICU because like you know a, a dead child has to be more kind of you know emotionally you know tugging at your heartstrings. And she's like, "Well, they don't all die." I'm like, "Yeah, but like even if like one of them does, that probably is gonna like." keep a normal person up at night and you know so it's interesting that the writing crime has a similar had a similar impact did you like, it, did you did. Like, it, very much, it did and it does it still does did you um, see like did you really did you see like you know crime scenes and like bodies and stuff like that or was it more- uh, i see crime scenes but very very rarely do i see a body um and i'm not looking for it i'm not that guy like this is not like the journalism that i'm doing now thank god is not about daily it bleeds if it bleeds it leads coverage and that's what i was doing and that was the thing that was getting to me because I knew both as an academic matter and as a practical matter that this parade of black faces in the media attached to crime creates this social stigma that um, it, people perceive black people as criminals um, or violent or dangerous or more likely to be involved with violence somehow and justifies all sorts of raci- racist horror. Um, that the media can perpetuate this stereotype unless people are actively fighting against it. And I was not somebody in a position where I was to be actively fighting against it internally because that was a relatively recent hire. I didn't have any clout. Um, the, uh, like, so, I mean, on the one hand, I'm the guy who's knocking on the door when somebody gets killed to talk to somebody's widow or brother or mother or whatever. And, you know, hey, how do you feel about this? And I'm like looking around like, you've got to be kidding me. I can't be this person. Um, yeah, but I was I mean, good at it. It's like it's almost like being an ambulance chaser as a, uh, you know, as a, as a lawyer. I, there is like a weird, you know, like I read so many stories of people and I've had even experienced it myself when like someone's like 
you know, like someone's going through the worst period of their life. It's, it's the worst day of their life. And like, the, and like you're, you know, and the journalist is like calling them and, you know, not like asking yeah. for comment. And it's like, it's like, geez, like, you know, there's a, like, there's a level of humanity. Like, Hey, this person is, I understand like you have to, you know, you, you want to get the news out. The news is important, but it's like, geez, like you're, you're talking to this person on the, 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 their lowest moment maybe ever. And, and here you are. Not you. The other thing, though, is that, and I and I understand this. Like people open up a newspaper, or they look at their social media feed these days because they are looking for pathos. They're looking for a good story. They are looking for something that is interesting, that has an that to which they can connect emotionally, that they'll have an emotional reaction to. This is journalism. Like it isn't, unfortunately, about what is happening in the world today and what you should think about it. It's can I make this thing interesting enough for you to actually click the button and open it? Like, and is there going to be something there when you read it? Um, and those two forces tug at each other in opposite directions, and they will be forever. They will be forever. This is an old problem. Mencken was saying the same damn thing in his columns in 1950. Like, this is an old problem. Um but I've like staked out a position on it at this point, which is I'm not interested in like emotional bullshit for no reason. And I'm sorry for the profanity. No, it's okay. But, I, my, my parents will only get mad if I curse. I think anyone else can. Um, fair enough. Like I want people to, to understand their world better so that they can hold their elected leaders to a standard that makes sense, that improves the world. Um, you know, and there's a bias in that. Like I want a better world. Like I want a better world is a bias. That is my bias. So, um, so you, so you're at AJC. You're like, okay, I'm sick of knocking on the door of like someone whose yeah. whose who's, uh, daughter just got decapitated. And so you you go to the MBA program at Georgia Tech. Yep, full ride. Because uh, I'm very smart. And uh, the thing is, though, I started in 2008, which is a terrible time <laughs> to start an MBA program. Like I went in there going, I'm going to go work for a bank. I'm going to go trade stock. I'm going to be a financial guy. Like maybe I'll get into real estate. And like for the first year, all it is in class was us looking at the Wall Street Journal with our jaw on the floor, looking at just how screwed up everything was. Um, and I grew up like I grew up. I I trained as a finance guy or like a, more of a marketing guy, but whatever, like with a group of people who were radicalized in their MBA program about what they thought finance should be. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny. Now that, yeah. I, now that I think about it, and I decided to catch off, but now that I think about it, like I remember I was in high school around that time. And I think that like, so there was this crypto crash recently and people are comparing it. It's like, Oh, crypto had its Lehman moment. And I think that I remember I, I, I had a, uh, I think my senior year of high school um, was around that, like that time. And I had a, uh, an econ class and I feel like the the teacher was trying to explain to us kind of the magnitude of, and I think now that I'm realizing, I'm realizing like there was no way for me to possibly grasp like Bear Stearns failing, Lehman failing, like this. I mean, the magnitude of that. I mean, I do think getting an, being an MBA in 08 is probably better better than 07 because <laughs> I think 07 probably got the got the got the worst of it because uh, they came out, you know, um, well, yeah, 06, 07, 08, that, that that whole class because I guess 06 they're coming out in 08. Which is when, yeah. so it's all bad. Right. But yeah, like that's, yeah. I mean, that's like the, you know, the 9 11 basically of, you know, it's like you can't, yeah, really it was the it. worst possible moment. So I ended up at a startup, like I was doing marketing for a startup. The startup died. And I ended up like sort of being like out there floating on my own, doing whatever. 
for about five years. Um, and it was a series of either really bad jobs or um, uh, working as a freelance marketing consultant doing um, – uh, how do I put this? So the term of art is competitive intelligence. But as a practical matter, I was a corporate spy. Um, <laughs> my, and I wrote a piece about it in Inc. Magazine, oddly enough, which paid a lot of money. Um, my companies would hire me to go find out everything that I could f- about their competition. Legally. 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 That's the important, and that's the important distinction. Legally. Well, how um, close, how close to the line did, did, did you get? <laughs> uh, that's an interesting question. I, I mean, I always stayed on the right side of the law, but let's just say I was, gl- I'm glad that I live in Georgia, which is a single party consent state for recorded phone calls. Um, I never lied to anyone, but there was a lot of stuff that I didn't tell people when I was talking to them. Um, I never claimed to be a journalist as I was talking to them. Um, but uh, well, I you are a journalist, right? You, I mean, you well, were, I am a journalist, you were, you but, I working, but I wasn't acting as a journalist at that moment. Right. The thing is, though, I was also freelancing. You know, and I was freelancing for a bunch of other publications. So when I wasn't freelancing, I was calling up this company and asking like what their supply chain looks like. Um, well, so what was, yeah. that, what was that, what was that five-year period? Like, cause I think about like, um, remember that when that Cosby show actor, Jeffrey Owens was spotted, like bagging groceries, like, yeah. like were you like, how did you, how, how were you able to, you know, it's such a cliche now, mental health, mental health, but like, how are you able to stay, you know, cause you go to this, you know, Georgia tech is a solid school. Uh, you get an MBA, like I'm sure it costs, I mean, well, you were, it was a full ride, but you know, you, you have this fancy degree, yeah. degree, um, well, I guess you're I like, couldn't really use. Like, I mean, it was weird. I couldn't get a job. And I honestly think a lot of that was race. Um, I was like a re- an older graduate because most of the folks coming out of there were like 27 and I was 30 something at this point. Um, and you, but I was you, also black. And you had finished your undergrad, I guess? Or how yeah, I finished my undergrad. And, but I was coming out like, I was coming out of the grad program and I was like 35 or something like that. Uh, 40? How old was I? Uh, 2012. So 40, uh, 39. Um, and I wasn't an engineer and I was black. And so like there, this thing where, uh, you know, you think the education is enough and it's really not because you don't know people. Um, social networks are everything in business. And frankly, I had not built them the way a lot of other folks did. Yeah, and business uh, and in I, life. <laughs> the crazy thing is right now I could I could pull a job like tomorrow. I'm batting away stuff right now. But because everybody knows me. Um and it's unfair. And it's one of the primary vectors of discrimination. Like I harp on discrimination a lot because it drives crime. Like the crime problems we see in Atlanta are born of poverty, and that poverty is fundamentally about how businesses discriminate against black people. I, mean, I, I agree. I agree. Although it is a little, a little bit ironic because the, the crime you're kind of most known for, um, you know, exploring is a guy who's a multi, multi, multi millionaire, <laughs> but, yeah. But, yeah. I, yeah. but I only care about him because I'm looking at crime broadly in Atlanta and he's just a very high profile crime. That's actually like, 
what's happening with YSL is being repeated in other with other gangs across the city and across the region. He's just the highest profile example of a bunch of stuff that's happening in town. Um, and I'm watching it because I'm interested in seeing the systemic reaction to what like gangs are doing in, in the, in the city. But let me back up for a second. So like five years in the middle of that, I'm, I get involved with the Occupy Wall Street movement. Oh, wow. Um, and I don't know if you remember that, but it was street protests about like the state of economic collapse and inequality in society. And, um, my political profile rose. Like that's when I joined the, the city council, I might add. Um, my political profile rose. I started, um, having a, a lot of connection and contact with other political figures around the, around the region. Um, every state rep and city councilman within 50 miles a year knows me and has known me wow. for uh, like 10 or 12 years. They've known me for years and years and years. I mean, were you like doing the whole, like, were you, were you, were you out, were you occupying? Like, were you, I remember because no, when I was in college, like, people were like occupying the, 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 the yard at the college. <laughs> yeah. There's a park in downtown Atlanta, Woodruff Park, that they tried to rename Troy Davis Park. Don't get me wrong. Like, uh, like there was a lot of dysfunction in the movement. Like oh, the movement I mean, itself was dysfunctional. I mean, that's um, any I, movement. That's any movement, you know. But yeah. the, weirdly, like all the people who were seriously involved are still involved in politics in Atlanta, and a lot of them have gone on to do really good, really important things. Um, a lot of other folks flamed out; they disappeared, and that's again, that's the nature of these things. Uh, but there's, but I've maintained a political network. Uh, you know, a network of contacts politically from the people I met in that park in 2011. I married one of them. The, uh, wow. yeah. Wow. Well, that's, that's, the, good. That's, um, a good, that's a good way to meet. Um, wait, so when you say you're batting stuff away, is it mostly like journalism, I guess? Like, uh, uh, yeah, at this point, although if I wanted to go get a corporate job, I could. Um, the, uh, cause God knows somebody like we need a public spokesperson to talk about our industry. And since everybody knows you and you know, every journalist in town, you'd be really good at it. And I'd be like, yes, I would, but you're not going to pay me enough. Um, because that number is going to, that's going to look like a phone number, like whatever that salary is for me to stop doing what I'm doing right now. Well, yeah, and also right. Substacks, I mean, a Substack can grow, you know, very, you know, uh, exponentially. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good with it right now. I'm pretty happy. Uh, it's not doing a lot, but it's doing what I want it to do, and that's the important thing. Right. Um, it, it is a place where I can write whatever I see without a whole lot of filtering, like to an audience that I know cares about it, where they can get it immediately. I can't ask for more, and I'm getting paid. Like I can't ask for more than that. Right. So you have a. Uh... Okay, so you go through this five year period. Then you, you get into the Occupy stuff. You go to, um, you, you know, you build this network. You meet, you meet someone who you marry. Yeah. So, uh, and then how does that lead to, you know, that's, that's so, really, oh. right. And I know this has been a long, long, like we're forty five oh, no. minutes into the conversation no, about good. like my background here. Like, so I took a job at Central Atlanta Progress, which is the business community's like like organization for downtown Atlanta, and they're an ancient and venerable organization. And they do good stuff and they needed a social impact director. And I was the first one that they'd ever hired. And my job was to connect the business community and their charitable and sort of institutional power to 
social organizations that were working on homelessness and mental illness and low-grade crime in downtown Atlanta. And so I was the guy who was would direct charitable money to like homelessness nonprofits, for example. Um, I would go to the meetings of the like nonprofit board that handles homelessness in Atlanta. I served as a um, chairman of the Superior Court's task force on mental health. Um, I spent a lot of time interacting with cops, but I also spent a lot of time under bridges talking to people who were experiencing homelessness. Um, I spent a lot of time with drug users and drug dealers and uh, liquor store owners and like. Did and, you ever fear for your safety? Uh, once, but not really. Uh, ho- homeless people are far more likely to be the victims of crime than the perpetrators of crime. Um, uh, I did end up getting into a street fight with one guy uh, who was chasing some homeless guy through the street. Um, but that, I mean, that's really isolated. I mean, that's really who, not normal. Who and I should have gotten into a fight with somebody because I was like 40 something at that point and I should know better. Like, but I'm in my head, I'm like, there's still this tough guy, like former soldier, like who, anyway. Wait, who, who won the fight? Uh, I'm going to say him because I didn't punch him. Um, he hit me twice and ran away. I mean, what are you going to do? Right. Like, I mean, it's such a stupid story. <laughs> I'll tell you the stupid story because it's funny, but it's a stupid story. So I'm I'm at Woodruff Park. I'm downtown. Like, and I see a guy I know who's homeless and we've been trying to get him housing. Like, literally, his name was on a list to get an apartment. I just needed to get to him. And, like, the problem is he was being harassed by some local gang kid. And there, he's being chased up the street, and he runs away. And then the kid's walking back, and I'm on a scooter. I'm on, like, a bird scooter. Like, you know, like the stupid scooters. And I have my cell phone in my hand, and I'm videotaping the guy. Because I'm like, you can't do that here. Like, and I want to know who you are if you're screwing with homeless people. Who are you? Why are you here? You can't do this. Hey, man, leave me alone. And he's walking away. I'm like, no. And I'm filming you. And he tries to grab my phone. And I will let him. I'm like, you need to get out of here. You're wrong. Who the hell are you? Like, why the hell do you have a be? And then he pops me. Pop. And it's like a Chiron at the bottom of the screen starts up. George, you are under attack. I'm looking around like, and then he pops me again. Nothing happens. I mean, I'm bleeding, but like pops me again. And I'm like, George, dismount the scooter. (laughs) And so I get off the scooter and his buddy grabs the scooter. Like, and I'm getting ready to go and like throw down. And he's like, oh shit. And he starts to run off. Like, and so I try to grab the scooter and the other guy is holding the scooter so that I can't scoot after him. And, and that's it. Like this was, that was the fight. Um, it's stupid. It's stupid, but so much violence is like born in real. Uh, trust me, so much violence is. I mean, I. I mean, we can get to this later, but the takeoff thing, Quavo, you know that that uh, that whole situation. Uh, rest in peace, takeoff. But even like th- this weekend, I mean, I'm, I'm 
I try to never be around violence. Uh, but this weekend, I, I play basketball like Saturdays and Sundays, and it's a longer story. But this weekend, the basketball game on Saturday ended in a fight. Like a like a dude, somebody shut. Like there's a foul call. Somebody, you know, someone's talking about let's take it outside, and someone shoves somebody. And then the, the the person who got shoved, I guess his dad was playing with this, and so the dad popped the dude, and it, was, it became a huge fight. I got out of there. I mean, I came back, but like I in Houston, um, where I where I was, um, like there's no like fights. Like when I saw the Quavo, those videos of the thing, like I'm so used to fights. I mean, I'm not going to act like it's all the time, but like, like it's very normal for fights to lead to shootings because people, you know, the person who lost, yeah. the person who lost comes back and gets a gun, you know, because their ego's bruised or just like it just. So I, I like very much, I get the heck out of there if there's like, if someone swings on somebody. Um, like, like the same this way you talk wise. about, well, the same way you talk about a Chiron, when I see somebody swing, a countdown starts in my head. It's like five, four, three, and I just, I'm counting out to the gunshots. And so, like, I've just been conditioned that way. Um, but, um, no, yeah, it's, I, I, I'm not, awful. Yeah, I'm not brave. Like, I'm, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not breaking up a fight. I'm, I'm, I'm getting the heck out of there. Um, but okay, so, so you know, so, yeah. so as I'm at Central Atlanta Progress, I'm in the media a lot. I'm interacting with news reporters, but I'm also writing. I'm still writing. I'm still writing through all of this stuff. And you know, my name keeps starts popping up in you know this magazine or that publication or whatnot. And I'm st- like especially when I'm writing about politics, because I start to write about the connection between policy and homelessness and street crime and all the rest of this stuff. Like this is the moment when I'm writing about it because I'm trying to influence. Um, I need better policy so that there are fewer homeless people on the street. Um, well, we need to be able, we need to be able to build housing. You know, like that. Yeah. I think that's the biggest policy. It's like it's just a supply and demand thing. If you can build more housing, then you know the price of housing comes down and more people can afford it. Bingo. So that's exactly it. So in 2019, I left Central Atlanta Progress and went to a housing startup, like where they were trying to convert houses into apartments. Essentially, like it's called Pad Split. Like it's a controversial startup in Atlanta because a lot of people look at it as sort of group housing that is not permitted by like local zoning laws. Well, yeah, it's not permitted and it would also bring down the price of, you know, the value of, you know, yeah, except that I like, I'm going to worry about that a little less than I'm going to worry about getting homeless people off the street. Like from a policy perspective, I'm like, something's got to give, this is the least invasive way, the, the quickest way to get people housing, like, because we actually need housing that's less expensive. Housing needs well, to be less expensive than it is. Well, first of all, congrats to Pad Split because I just googled it and it still exists, which you can't say of many startups after the past uh, year that we've had in the. In this the is true. The um, problem is, like, I got and don't get me wrong, I was working policy there. You know, I had a great time. I ended up meeting like random. It wasn't random. Like, I went to Washington to talk to Ben Carson. At, like, I briefed the HUD secretary on this stuff. Um. But the pandemic well, hits. All, I want to congratulate you for doing that because I, I see these people like, you know, when Killer Mike will, will kind of meet with, um, you know, Brian Camp and be like, oh, like he's like, you have to like, you, you have to talk to who's in power. Like people will be like, I, I'm not going to talk to someone from the other party or something. It's like, well, you're just disenfranchising yourself. So bravo on speaking to Ben Carson. Well, there you go. And that's it. Like, I, I'm like, I'm, I need better policy. I'm going to do that however I can get it. Like, but the pandemic hit like a month later and Half the team was laid off and I was expensive. And so I got, I, I got cut and like then the street protests start and I'm out there in the street 
like live camming and talking about what's going on and connecting everything in the street to all of the things that I'd been working on for the last several years um, about poverty and crime and violence and the police. Um, and I drew a lot of attention. Um, the thing is, uh, while the protests were going on, it was also evident to me that the violent crime rate in Atlanta was starting to tick up. Right. Uh, well, that was the canary was, in the coal mine for the next, you know, two years, basically. Exactly. Like, and I knew about that because I'd been paying attention to crime trends as, uh, while I was working on the social impact stuff, I recognized the political impact of an increase in violent crime because violent crime had been falling fairly consistently for almost 25 years. Right. Well, this so, is a, there's this inflection. Well, this is a very. I think this is something that's going to be studied for decades because people, you know, violent crime has risen all around the country, right? And I think obviously there's the, like, you know, republic. Like I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna like identify myself politically too much, but I think that like violent crime has risen around the country. But you have people who say, oh, like it's in these blue states, well, it's in these blue cities, it's in these blue cities, but it's risen everywhere. Or people will say, oh, well, it's because of cash bail, but it's risen everywhere. Like even it's not just risen in places where they've said, oh, we'll get rid of cash bail. And I think people are gonna study for decades. Was it, you know, like is it? Like, was it just people being cooped up in the house for a year? Did that make them go crazy? Was it the, was it the mask? Was it the fact that you can wear a mask now? And so you can, you know, like, what is it that made this? So that's, a, you're answering that question is what I've been trying to do for the last two years or so. I said at the beginning of 2021 that somebody needs to get in front of this and write accurately why crime, violent crime increased in Atlanta to look at all of the causes and to lay it out without being somebody who's chasing after this murder or that shooting, but to say, here is what the trends are. Here are what the root causes are. These are the policy answers to those problems. Like this is what, like, and it's eight and 10 different things. It is not one thing. And that's one of the things that's important to understand is anybody who tries to lay it on like this thing or that thing or the other thing is missing it. It's, the accumulation of 10 different problems. And in Atlanta, all those streams just sort of crossed in exactly the right way to amplify each other. Well, it's, you're very right. Like it's very rare for something to be monocausal, right? People will try to blame, you know, Oh, it's because of this one thing. And it's, it's just very rare for a problem to be that simple. But I do think criminologists will probably be studying what, you know, this question for years. It, like, and the thing is it, yeah. it's, it's, it's violent crime. Like it's not even like, you know, burglaries and like, uh, like, other crimes are like kind of doing the same, like following the same trends, but a violent crime for some reason is up, you know, m homicides up like 30%. You know, it's, it's very, you know, yeah. it's, it's, and we don't know why. 60, yeah. yeah. And, and different, yeah, yeah. I mean, some people like think it's, it's because, of, some people think it's because of, you know, is it George Floyd and cops don't want to deal with like, you know, cops have been, that was part know, of it. like, they don't, they're like, wait, well, you, you, you all hate us now. Well, we're, we're just going to let you guys sit back and let you guys kill each other. Like there's, I think we're going to be studying this for years, uh, decades, decades. So you bring that up because the American Society of Criminology uh, had their annual conference uh, this week or last week, I should say, in Atlanta. And I attended. And you're exactly right. Like, this is the thing that they're talking about. Uh, so th like one like one of the things I should say that they're talking about is to what degree there's been a depolicing effect because of the public backlash around George Floyd. And that had a very specific expression in Atlanta, like 
So let me just sort of see, give me give me a minute to sort of explain like these oh, no, eight yeah, or ten things. You. Yeah, go ahead. Like so, there are like eight or ten things. Like in Atlanta, um, we're in Georgia, and Georgia has extremely licentious gun laws. Like you can get a gun basically whenever you want without a like you you can get a background check, but there are lots of ways to buy one without one. There's no training requirement. Like it's just very very easy to get a gun here. That's one. Um, we have the worst inequality problem in the United States. And that, and when I say that, I mean, the average income for a white household in 2018 was $83,000 a year. And the average income for a black household in Atlanta in 2018 was $28,000 a year. And that was the biggest split in the United States. Atlanta has the lowest income mobility of any major city in the United States. Uh, It's like you have extremely wealthy people in Buckhead and you have the worst kinds of poverty I have ever seen in South Atlanta and basically nobody in the middle. And almost all of the poverty is racialized. It's black. Um, So that's the second thing. The third thing... uh, we had a George Floyd situation go down here. We had Rayshard Brooks get shot and killed by a cop after a struggle over a taser in the parking lot of a Wendy's in South Atlanta. They burned that Wendy's to the ground the next day. Um, This is 2020. Yeah, this was 2020. Um, I I vaguely remember a Wendy's being burned down. Yeah. uh, yeah. I was there. I watched them burn it down. (laughs) It was a, it was a moment. Um, the uh, the next day, uh, or that yeah, the like that day, uh, the mayor fired the two police officers who uh, shot and killed Rayshard Brooks, um, and the police department essentially went on strike. And this happened at the same time that nine one one calls fell by like thirty one percent because the public like whenever there's a huge. Um, high-profile police misconduct case, there is, like, it's never mind the cops, the public goes on strike. The, like, there's a, a, a massive loss of trust in the police force, and it shows up by people not calling the cops. Like, and so, like, people said, basically, we're like, screw the police, and the police were like, well, screw you too. Um, so those two things happened at, at the same time. Um, Atlanta was, um, or Georgia was among the first states in the country to reopen after uh, the pandemic, like, or during the pandemic. They, the governor famously, like, got, said, we're all getting back to work and opened up the restaurants and the nightclubs and the bars. And so Atlanta had the only bars and nightclubs on the West, on the East Coast that were open. And so, like, there would be Atlanta days in New York where everybody would get on a plane and fly to Hartsfield Jackson and go party. And it, like, so you ended up with all this beef coming in from outside. Oh yeah, a lot, um, well, a lot of rappers live in Atlanta. I mean, they, a lot of rappers live in LA, but also Atlanta. Yeah, and LA shut they, down very hard during the pandemic. So they sure did. So, but we were open, and so we had like, and one of the things I'm looking at from a musical perspective is the degree to which like Chicago drill started to affect Atlanta's rap scene. Um, oh yeah, no, we, we're gonna. We, we, I have a lot. I, the second half. Oh, I guess we're in again in, in, in the second half. Yeah, yeah. I, I have so a I'm, lot. I'm moving fast so that we can get to the meat of this. The look, I, um, I, I'm all for a lengthy podcast, so go ahead. 
Yeah. So the like the the folks who work downtown would be counting up cars that were coming from out of state that are parked at the clubs, and you had all of this fighting going on outside of the clubs, often over weed, because people were coming from weed legal states, and who got to sell weed downtown became an issue. Like the um, the schools shut down super hard here, even though the clubs were open. Like because the schools were locally controlled, but the state's sort of pandemic stuff was state level. Um, and so you had a bunch of kids who weren't in school and really weren't doing like the remote stuff and kids who were in poverty. And let me tell you, seven out of 10 children who live in Atlanta are living in poverty um, wow. were being targeted by street gangs. And it's the street gangs thing that's sort of like the at the bottom of the list. The district attorney says 80% of the violent crime is because of street gangs. I don't think it's 80%. But, I, but if you told me it was 40%, I would believe you. Um, there's been this, like, the YSL-YFN thing is the highest profile violent gang war that's been happening in Atlanta, but there are about a half a dozen other ones. And when you add all of the anxiety, there's been a 25% increase in depression and anxiety diagnoses. Like you're not imagining it when you see something like a guy shot and killed someone over a Subway sandwich with mayonnaise on it. Like there's been an increase in that kind of like psychiatric problem in part because people have been cooped up and like they're disconnected and all the rest of it. But when you add that to the gang stuff, to all the rest of it, to the kids being out of school, to a bad relationship with the police, to the, all of it, like, and suddenly you get a 60% increase in your homicide rate. Right. Right. It's not, that's what I've been trying to explain for the last two years. That's good. Also, I, I looked it up. I can't find a stat for seven out of 10, although it says that one, I think, I'll take your word for it, but it says one in four Georgia children live in poverty. I'm sure, right uh, in Atlanta, yeah. city, city of Atlanta. Yeah, I city of Atlanta. Yeah, I was I was trying to find that stat, but I'm sure uh, I'll, I could find that later. Um, but yeah, so so the, yeah, I agree. There are all these crazy causes, and so you're writing about that. You're writing about that, and then you get into the you like. How do you first start? Sort of, I almost imagine you as like you know those those detectives with like the 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 the, the, the uh, cork board and they're like putting like yeah. how do you start putting it because it's that that's what I think you are most known for is that you were the first person to start putting all this stuff together at least publicly. I'm sure obviously in the streets people have been known, you know the, the streets know things when they happen, but you seem to like be the first to start piecing together like wait this person died and then that person died and then this, well this there's this shooting and then there's this this lyric and then this you know the, this Instagram yeah. post and then and then this Instagram post and wait we've got a war here and you know uh, we've got a, a, like how did you start to piece that together? So a lot of it was like honestly it's just reading the indictments like the previous cases like you start going through homicides and you start going through indictments. And in particular, um, the YFN group was indicted in the middle of 2011, 2021. Um, and a lot of what was going on with YSL was in the YFN indictment because that's the gang war. Um, once I realized that that was on, I started looking at the individual counts within that indictment and started backing out like, all right, well, what happened here? Well, what happened here? Well, let me read this court transcript. Well, let me look at this initial incident report. Um, 
and the picture emerged. It's in like the documentation is public. Like that's the crazy thing is. So really, it was not, it was it was there for anyone. Like anyone could. It was there for anyone to look at. It's just not organized well. Well, yeah, I've been so I, I follow you on Twitter, so I've been seeing like they've been basically you know making you jump through uh, hoops, military style hoops, to like get any sort of documents lately. Oh, it sucks so hard. I can get anything I want to out of DeCab tomorrow, today, right now, while we're on this podcast. Uh, the Fulton County website is broken, and so I need a relationship with the Fulton County Clerk's Office in order to get them to send me stuff. Or I need to physically trundle down to the courthouse and sit in their basement and go through their computers and print things out and print things out. Well, why do you, why do you can't think, email it? Why do you think they? I mean, it seems like they don't want you to have these documents. Why do you think that is? I think they're just screwed up. I don't think it's personal. Like it's the same rules for everybody. I think they're just screwed up. Yeah, I guess not you, but they don't want people to have. But, I, I, yeah. but it seems like it's not intentional. Okay, and so you start to put this together, and you write this, and then the the the, the like the YS the the, the YSL indictment happens, and it, it's the big you know it breaks the internet basically because obviously Gunna and Thug are two of the biggest artists in their prime, um, and so you like how, how does everything start? You know, because you end up on Vlad TV twice. Like, how does all this start happening for you? So I sent Vlad a note about a month before the, the indictment saying that this was coming. That helped. Like, I told Vlad, this is about to happen. And Vlad's like, okay, that's cool. And then it happened. And he's like, oh, shit, you're the only person who knows everything who'd, who'd actually talk about it. That's how I ended up on Vlad. And once, like, and the first Vlad interview was actually really solid because, um, like, I made it clear that this was reporting that could be done. And I'm... Glad we're having this conversation because I need to pick a fight. <laughs> go go ahead, pick it. I am not a music journalist. Um, I'm not even really a crime journalist. I'm a political journalist, but I'm not a music journalist. But there's this entire ecosystem of, quote, music journalists, unquote, like XXL Mag or uh, – vibe or God knows who else like or out there who are profiting from the culture who write about rap music all day long. Why am I the guy looking at this stuff? Why is it that I am the person who's like magically discovering that young thug is an actual criminal allegedly and um, is likely to be arrested and like, where the hell has everybody else been? Well, and you know, why aren't they on it right now? Well, I will say they probably have some, you know, music journalism. I mean, just music in general. Well, music has money because of streaming now. But like, if you go back, I remember, remember, you know, Puff Daddy and the family would spend movie budgets on music videos. And now, so I, I do think that some of it might, might just be resources, right? Like music journalism probably just doesn't have the funds. I, I think some of them are owned by bigger entities though. So that, that, is, that is a good question. That's a fair question. That's I, mean, a fair question. That's, I mean, that's the thing. Like I fear that what I'm looking at is access journalism, like run amok. Like the, the, these entities exist in part because they can get interviews with, you know, a little baby if they want to. But if Lil Baby thinks that there's some reporter at that magazine that is looking into his past in some way that he doesn't like, and this is to cast no aspersions on Lil Baby. I just picked a name out of ra- uh, at random. He's going to start um, beefing you like he's beefing uh, academics. Yeah, and I'm not. I don't know. I am in no way 
suggesting anybody right now is the next Rico. People keep asking me that. Oh yeah, people. Um, I mean, people. Well, people will um you know misattribute or like they'll they'll misrepresent your tweets and they'll say oh like you know he said that this is the next you know yeah it's it's I mean but people do it for engagement you know yeah and I don't mean to do that like what I'm saying is if little baby thinks that there are reporters who are actually looking at him in a way that he doesn't like he's not going to give that outlet an interview um, yeah. and they know that and so they're not going to rock the boat well I, and I, I think we have an industry full of that. Well, I, I also think I think I, I I agree somewhat, but I also think it's a little bit simpler than that, which is that reporting is difficult, right? Like reporting, you know, people a, a story might, you know, people might work on the same story, you know, reporting it for for you know years, uh, for months or years, and so I think reporting is also just difficult. And like, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think access is part of it too, um, but I think that like reporting takes effort. But you're right. I mean, the, the indictments were all there, so yeah. So so we get there, and then now you're you know you're obviously like you've become you know you're also you're also the target from a uh, what do they call themselves now? ADOS, American Ascendance of Slavery, or oh, for Christ's sake, F- FBA Foundational. Yeah, Black like the Foundational Black Americans. And yeah, okay, so here I am. I'm a biracial Nigerian American Black person. Um, I have no ancestry bef- in the United States before 1920. Um, and so apparently, I'm the enemy. And so would Barack Obama. God help us. Well, they, like, I mean, they, they hate him too, I think. Um, but Which is crazy. Which is crazy. And that's my point. Like, this is a cult that wants to appropriate the mantle of blackness well, as what? the only people who get to speak for what is proper and good for black people in the United States. And that's nonsense. Well, what, what, um, what, what drew, like, what did you do that drew their ire? Like, was it, a, I think, was it you saying that, like, was it, they felt like you were trying to put these people in jail? Like, what, what, what did you do that? I'm trying them- to remember exactly what it was. I, I saw something. Oh, oh, all right. So there's a writer, Michael Harriet. I don't know if you're familiar, but yeah, he's, yeah, he, the, 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 I know Skip Gates. Uh, so the, the, yeah. Yeah. Um, Michael Harriet put up a tweet by the guy who's the head of the Foundational Black Americans group um, of a uh, a cartoon about uh, Stacey Abrams that was just vile and horribly racist. Like, and he was showing, basically, Harriet was like, these people are crazy. You don't want to deal with them. And I'm like, yes, they are absolutely nuts. And you absolutely do not want to deal with them. And I basically said the same thing. And suddenly, I'm the enemy. Um, with all sorts of racist horrors. I mean, the thing is, over the course of my career, um, and in part it was because of the Occupy stuff, um, I have had a, a finely tuned ear for political extremism. Right. Because I've needed to understand what was radical in a good way and to distinguish that from what is radical in a bad way. Um. Yeah, because that was a problem during Occupy, frankly. Uh, and so I've written a lot over the years about political extremism on both the left and the right. Well, it's um, rare for people it's rare for people to even acknowledge that it exists on, on certain sides. You're you're not wrong. Like when you tell somebody that there are actual like black political extremists who are black supremacists, for lack of a better word. And I, I don't actually think that word fits there, but I'll use it. Um the uh, like some people will be like, no, no, you can't make a false equivalency here. And I'm like, I, I don't mean to make a false equivalency. Like, it's just a language problem. These guys are screwed up. 
Like right. there are better, there are better avenues for seeking racial, uh, you know, racial equity in this country than, you know, folks like the, and I'm here. I am here. I'm I'm doing it again. Like black Hebrew Israelites. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, that, that's yeah. The, I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. we're getting this weird anti-Semitism thing from the black community right now that is really disturbing. Well, and, yeah. I think that the it's I was I was it's funny. I remember during the peak of that Kanye um, Kyrie stuff, the guys I play basketball with, we were doing kind of our post basketball hang, and like the conversation that you know they were having was like them saying, "See, like." They do control everything because look now look at look at all the repercussions that Kanye and Kyrie have faced. See, they like they they control banking. They can like you know it was like it was like well this is a you know it's kind of weird, um, but yeah I think it's tough because like the more you the more people face consequences for that kind of speech, the more it kind of reinforces the idea that oh this one group does control everything. Um, but yeah, I mean that's a whole other. Um, and then also, so I don't. Like the the the, the ADOS people are kind of crazy, but I can kind of agree. I understand like where they come from from the sense of like I Africa, do too. I get it. Like Africa, so there's this is that Roland Fryer. He's this um uh, economist uh, at Harvard, and first and he found that first and second generation African immigrants, despite cons- constituting only about ten percent of the U.S. Black population, make up about forty one percent of all Black students in the Ivy League. And I think you know that's one thing I know. Like it, so, I went to Harvard and like. Like all the black, a lot of the black people are Africans, like you know Nigerians, you know Ghana, yeah. especially Nigeria. And then even in, and then a lot of the, like also another thing about Harvard, like all the like half the black people are from Atlanta. Like they they, they don't look outside of Atlanta. Like <laughs> they literally like it's insane. It's like like it's like uh, they get a few black people from here, and then they just like they're like all right, like we're gonna get like we're gonna get all the black people from Atlanta, and then we'll get some you know sprinkle in some from other places. And uh, that's funny. I had no idea. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like there's I remember like I think maybe like the people who were freshmen when I was a junior, it was like, they were like, they were like all from Atlanta. <laughs> like, cause the black community in Harvard is very small and tight. And it's like, it's like, does Harvard not know that like there are other places that black people are? Um, but yeah, so I can, I can understand if it's like, cause it's like, Hey, like I don't have the, as a, as a Nigerian, like I don't have the history of, um, you know, slavery or whatever, but, I, but I get to benefit from like, you know, affirmative action. Although I do think like I got in on, well, I don't know. I guess everyone's. Well, I, I, I don't think the benefit is necessarily like unearned in the sense that if you and I walk into the wrong target, like we're going to end up being followed around by a security guard. Like, and if we apply to the wrong company, like we are just as likely to be discriminated against as an African American whose name is Joe Smith. Like, if they just don't like black people, they don't like black people, and oh, it doesn't okay. actually matter. That's true. Although I, I will say that, and like I'm not gonna like, look, I I agree mostly, but I think that, you know, like if someone if if someone's hiring and they see like Demetrius, you know, Ladarius or something on a resume, versus if they see like, you know, Chidi or you no know, Nwaneka or like Olo, yeah. you know, Bola, or, you know, Adewale, they're like, oh, like you know, there's there's a there's a different sort of you know, it's like like there are it is a little tricky, um, but I mean, but I don't think the response is to then become like an extremist and like, become, you know, and like, so for the division, I think, you know, you're like, you said you're playing into the hands of sort of like actual white supremacy. Yeah, I don't think there's any, so here's the other thing is that a lot of the, the groups around ADOS uh, in 2016 were either wittingly or unwittingly carrying the water for Russian disinformation guys. Well, and also like that came, yeah. It, it came out in the, the federal report, the, like the, like the, the, interference campaign report that the FBI produced. Well, that's true. Although I think Russia's objective is literally just to like, sow. I mean, obviously they, I think yeah. it seems they wanted to get Trump elected, but uh, they also just want to sow division, right? Like it's like, we, like we can just like, 
and America's our number one enemy. Let's just as much as we can divide America, and you know, if we can divide them more and more, like the better. But okay, let's. I, we can finally get to the meat yeah. of this. So I think that like the YSL stuff. You know, I saw your reporting on that, and like I have, you know, in my a quick monologue here. Like I have a, like my connection to sort of like crime and like hip hop is very like unique. Like first of all, like. I grew up in Houston and like, I'm not going to ever act like I grew up in like the, you know, the trenches, the worst neighborhood or whatever. But like, you know, when I was in sixth grade, my house got shot like in a drive by, like, you know, I don't know. I wasn't, I was, I was in sixth grade. I, I'm not involved in any sort of, I mean, people start, did start joining gangs. Like I want to say seventh, eighth grade and stuff, but I was, you know, my house got shot in like a drive by. Um, then when I was 16, I got shot. A friend of mine, he was a blood and like, he was, a, I mean, it was like a friend of mine, he was a blood and he, he got shot at a party. He was maybe like a year or two older than I was. He, I think like a year older. He got shot at a party and like he was like, yo, you know, out me and my friend were at his house. It was like super man. I went to the barber shop. It was like my I just started driving on my own. And I went to the barber shop. I saw I saw my friend and my friend's mom. And they're like, oh, we're gonna they're like, oh, after this, we're gonna go to our other friend's house. You know, he got shot. We're gonna go check on him, see how he's doing. So I went, I followed them, you know, after I got my haircut, I met them at his house. And then me and my friend are upstairs, and then my friend's mom and the, the kid's mom are downstairs. And the kid, he's playing with this gun. He's like, you know, I, I know who shot me. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to handle it. He's playing around with it. You know, we pass it around or whatever. And he's about to put it back up and he starts spinning it like on the handle. I'm like, well, like make sure it's on safety. And he was like, he's like, it is. And he pulls the trigger, which is a, what, what, one thing I learned is that safeties often make guns more dangerous because like, people yeah. are like, oh, it's on safety versus like something like a Glock that has a trigger. like you prefer a Glock that has a, 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 like a trigger safety versus like a, you know, a Beretta or something that has like a, a safety that you click on and off because that like you have this false sense of security that oh it's on safety so you know, i mean it was i, I got grazed it wasn't anything crazy it's you, you can't really see um anyway and then so that was like my second kind of experience Your mother must have been so pissed at you oh yeah i mean it was i never i mean needless to say like we never hung out with that guy we didn't like press charges or anything but we never hung out with him again or i wasn't allowed to although we follow each other on instagram and you know, when i was when i had a facebook we, i mean we were so young um and then so that's my second experience sort of with with kind of violence like that um and then in 2013 a group like i made this, actually i made this documentary i'll send it to you i made this documentary about my area of the city called a leaf and like a lot of like it's like this very it's like a lot of africans it's like this very diverse like filipino um mexican african like, this very diverse neighborhood kind of like relatively working class but you know there was like so a lot of people, you know, like like Richard Lewis is from A Leaf, Lizzo, Maxo Cream, this rapper, but like you know, it's got like a good rap scene. But there was like kind of tension, like gangs and then cliques and stuff. So I made this documentary. I want to say 2012, uh, summer summer of 2012, and then and there was like this tension between these different cliques. And in 2013, um, some friends of mine threw a um, like a black party sort of thing, and like, everyone was getting along. And at the very end of it, someone swung on somebody, and then it, it ended in gunfire. So that was 2013. And then um, 2016, I was at uh, Drake has this weekend in Houston called Houston Appreciation Weekend, and this is before like I ended up meeting and like kind of having a, a bit like a, a relationship. Like we're cool, you know, with Drake, but this is before that, and so he had this, you know, he was in, he was having this Houston Appreciation Weekend, and like this strip club was having like a, you know, like a, a party. I don't, he didn't, even, I don't think he even showed up to uh, that night, but like there was a party at the strip club, and I'm upstairs. People start kind of tussling, and then like one thing, you know, all of a sudden. Pop, you know, pop up, you know, somebody dies. I think somebody had tried to reach for somebody's chain and, and, and died. And then, so that's my fourth experience with, um, you know, being around like, a shootout. And then my fifth was this, I want to say this April or uh, Drake was in town and like he had a private party somewhere. And then afterwards, and that, you know, that ended super late. And then afterwards, people were like, oh, we're going to the, you know, the after hour, we're at a strip club or whatever. I was like, okay, like, you know, I don't really, I don't like to, I don't like the club. I don't like 
I'm not a strip club person. I don't like the club, even just the club. I'm a homebody. I was like, okay, whatever, I'll go. And then, like, you know, I was with, uh, it's funny that these are the same people who were with uh, Takeoff the night he got shot. I was with Mike Prince and uh, Jay Prince. I was, I was with them, but I was like in the same area as them. Like, and I'm right. like, I, I see Mike because I've been around the Prince. I brought Jay Prince to speak at Harvard in 2018. Um, and I've just been around because, you know, jazz is around, you know, being around Drake, like jazz, and you're, you're around, you know, the Prince family. Um, and so I, um, and so I see Jay, I see Mike Prince run up to Junior like with this frantic sort of look. And I'm like that. Th- th- there's something, something's off here. Like he said, he said they, you know, they something, something. And so I start, I start take because I, like I said, I have this having been around when the shots go up. I have this sixth sense. So I start trying to find the exit, a back exit. So I start running, 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 running. Uh, I, I get through, I get through the back, and I'm running for a good amount. So I'm like, well, like I've been running for a little bit now. And I haven't heard any gunshots. You know, like, this is, and then pop, pop, pop. You know, and, then, and then they come, and so there's like a, you know, so that's that's five, um, which is which is five too many. And so I, I'm very like wary of that stuff. But I think I started learning how, like, it's insane how close the streets and music are. And I think people are starting to realize it as these rappers keep getting. I mean, Takeoff was more of a well, meh, it was a fluke. But like that's still about being around the streets, being around sort of a fluke. Yeah, it's like, a it's sort of. That, I mean, so I was I, I caught myself. I'm like, that's still him being around a street element, right? Like guys who yeah. can't settle disputes without resorting to gunfire. But like you know, I'm hanging out with the Fifth Ward and then coming to this part, you know. But um, like I it started like I want to say like the veneer started slipping off me. So I, I met this guy named Bugatti. Um, and he's like he used to hang around the Prince family, and um he like i remember he was like he's from a leaf and i was like you know we had a bunch of mutual friends because you know instagram and i saw that he got shot i want to say i can find it um he got shot maybe like 2015 or so um and like he's not a you know like you know how the media calls anyone a rapper you know he's not like really a rapper but like you know like he you know he hung out with rappers he was in that scene and so you know he got shot in okay february 2016 he got shot in the bathroom four times in the, in the bathroom of a local strip club and i remember thinking oh like this is you know i wonder you know, i guess no one knows who did it and a friend of mine was like oh this person did it and th- this person did it because of this re-. like i'm like oh like oh everyone kind of knows everything like the street like everyone in the same way like if you go on twitter you'll see people being like oh yeah like obviously this is all alleged but like if you, if you go on twitter and just search you know, Thug, Nut, Lucci, you'll see tweets from, you know, from 2019. Oh yeah, Thug, you know, Thug got Lucci's homie Big Nut. You know, like it's, it's like common knowledge in the quote unquote streets. And so I started being like, oh, like, you know, my friend was like, oh yeah, Bugatti got shot because of this reason by this person. And, you know, it was, you know, in that same sort of rapper scene. And then the thing that really did it for me was 2016. And you should actually, well, you don't like writing about this stuff, but 2016, if you look it up, there's this rapper in Houston named Kenny Lou. And so, I had this friend named Ghost um, or Nick, and he used to hang out with Kenny Lou a lot. And Kenny Lou was just like kind of like up and coming rapper in Houston. Really, um, like after he, you know, people uh, uh, hit really great music. Um, and so they were, they got, they both got killed outside a um, this strip club called Onyx in Nove- on November twenty seventh, coming uh, November twenty seventh, twenty eighteen. I remember waking up, I saw somebody post you know, an RIP Kenny Lou post. I'm like, whoa, like, whoa, that's, you know, that's sad, whatever. And that's my post RIP Nick. And like, I know Nick, like he, he came to stay, stay with me in LA. Like we were, you know, we were cool. We were friendly. Um, I'm like, well, like they both got killed. Like, well, you know, like, cause my thinking when someone gets killed in my, you know, in, in knowing Houston stuff, it's usually like what happened with takeoff, like a fight escalates into gunfire or an attempted robbery or an attempted robbery uh, gone wrong. Like you, you reached the thing that happened at V live in 2016. Someone, 
allegedly had reached for someone's chain and then, you know, shooting, you know, erupted. And so I was like, they both got killed. Like, that's strange because that doesn't imply either of those situations. And it turned out they were sitting in their car, they're parked outside the strip club and two shooters, one on each side, it was, it was a hit. Like it was, it was like a, a hit. And oh, wow. so, you know, I started, so I started asking around, like, well, like, what happened, you know, whatever. And everyone was like, oh, we told, we told uh, Ghost not to hang out with Kenny Lou because Kenny Lou has money on his head. Like, it was like a no, you know, they said it as casually as me saying that, you know, you're ringing, like, you know, everybody knows Kenny Lou has money on his head, <laughs> you know, and like, you know, it, you know, every, and I started listening to Kenny Lou's music after that. People started trading them, like, his, his unreleased music, like Pokemon cards uh, out here in Houston. And so, like, you know, he, he has songs, he's like, yo, they say there's a brick on my head. Like, he, like, you know, it turned out that this guy, Kenny Lou, had allegedly done a lot of things in the streets, things, and I'm not breaking any news here, by the way this stuff is all like in the youtube comments I, you know i'm not i'm not a street dude but you know the whole don't right. thing if you go on youtube in the comments allegedly i mean people had all sorts of re- the first thing that people said is that kenny lou's friend so kenny lou had these two friends who literally a year to the date before so november 25th really uh 20 20 um 8 17 him and his two friends got got shot and his two friends died one died that night one died the next night and then kenny lou himself died a year and a day a year, you know, a year later, so twenty fifth, twenty sixth, twenty seventh, and um, people were saying that that oh, like Kane Lou's friends had, you know, finessed. They used to allegedly. This is all on YouTube, so don't. I'm not breaking any news. Uh, allegedly, they they used to give uh, a someone who's close to Lucci uh, when they would be in Houston, they would give get lean from them. But once, but one time they finessed them. They put instead of giving them lean they gave them you know the essential you know essentially empty bottles like if i you know if, I, if i'm gonna i'm selling you you know pills but they end up being fake you know like right you know advil basically and that allegedly you know allegedly that lucy put a hundred thousand on on his head and then you know but then but then people were like oh like i mean this, I mean, this is all like if you go on if you go right now you can't lose music on his youtube and his songs have like hundreds of thousands even some some with a million plus views the comments will be like oh yeah like he you know lucy put you know lucy got him killed you know whatever and but then people are like oh like kane lucy had done a lot you know he had allegedly you know killed somebody he had robbed people he'd done a lot of things in the streets and but anyway they were just like just, they were just so casual like oh yeah we told you know even someone was like oh, i told him that night like hey it's gonna happen tonight like you, you better stay away from this dude um and so i was like oh wow like the streets and music are like you know, and I remember mm-hmm. I used to, when I was in LA, I would hang out with them, you know, because I, I moved to LA when I was 23 and I was, you know, I was writing for Blackish. I got thrust into this sort of Hollywood world and I was kind of rubbing, you know, I was in the same rooms and parties with like, you know, the, like Bieber and Kendall and Kylie and all, you know, all the, this whole Hollywood, you know, scene. And also I would meet, I met rappers and I, I was cool with, and I would get a kick. You know, I remember like one time I went to a, I watched the Mayweather McGregor fight at LA Reed's house randomly in uh, Bel Air and I walk in, it's, it's Scotty Pippen, Kanye, Kim, um, Courtney and Usher, you know, and it's like, but it's like literally just, just us, basically like, you know, and, they, and their kids are running yeah. around and it's like, you know, so, like, so that was like my life, you know, when I first moved to LA and, you know, I would, I, I got a kick out of bringing my friends sometimes or, you know, around some of that stuff. Cause you know, I, you know, I grew up like my college years were, were a lot of these artists. And so I remember a friend of mine, I used to hang out with Fredo Santana, the, the, the Chicago drill rapper. And a friend of mine was like, yo, like if Fredo, like we were friends, like he would, he came to my house, he would come to my apartment, we texted. And my friend was like, yo, if Fredo's at your place, like I don't want to be around Fredo. And I remember being like, dude, like Fredo's, Fredo's really cool. And I'm, now that I look, you know, I see what happened with FBG Duck where he got killed, you know, at the Gold Coast in like a brazen, you know, two cars pulled up and, you know, like a, like a Chicago gangland style killing in, in broad daylight. And I'm like, oh, these, these guys are literally in real wars. Like they are like, you know, if you look up little Dirk, like the list of, you know, his associates who have been killed, it's like, 
you know, it, it's, it's, you know, his, obviously like Bond in, in Atlanta, but his brother D thing, like it is like, these people are in, are in, in genuine, yeah. like, this isn't like some sort of hypothetical, it's not theatrical, it's real. Yeah, like they're, they're, there's they're, a body count. Yeah, they're, they are, they, they, they rap about it, they joke about it, they, they talk about, you know, who's up on the score, you know, we're two up on y'all, we're three up on, and like, it, they are, they are killing each other. Like, it's not like a, it's not like, and I think it didn't, I didn't realize it until, until that Kenny Lou situation where they were like, oh yeah, he had money. And so like, it's like, cause when these rappers die and like, I know that it's funny, but like, like some of them are kind of fluky situations. PMB rock happens to go to a Roscoe's and gets killed. But a lot of these, like I have sympathy for all of them, but the ones that are targeted hits were like, you know, Dolph, where someone's like tailing you or Mo three, when someone's tailing you and that like, where you, you know, that's like, that tells, tells me like, and no, no disrespect to like, you know, Mo three or like Dolph, but that tells me like you have done something in the streets that to warrant somebody saying I'm putting, you know, like, there now four people have been arrested for Dolph, and there is like you know it was a paid hit. So the people planned it. Somebody paid for it, um, and like I realized like after that Kenny Lou thing, I'm like oh like a, some of these deaths are like you've done something to someone, whether you robbed them, whether you had one of their somebody killed, and not, and they have they are now retaliating. But yeah, it's, I mean it's insane because these people are millionaires. They're multi multi millionaires, right. and they are still like you know like they're actively doing street stuff doing street like and in the middle of like all of this weird street violence and i think a lot of this has to do with an inability to trust um if you grew up in the street and when i say in the street i mean like surrounded by violence like that was relatively common if you were growing up in an environment where there was a lot of criminality and specifically, when you're growing up in an environment with a lot of poverty, uh, and then you hit it, like you put the song of the summer out, or you've got an album that does well or something, and suddenly you've got a bunch of money, you don't know who to trust. Because you know that the industry is filled with people who will exploit you. Like the stories are long and legendary about folks who are looking for somebody with new money to go and steal it, essentially. Like, right. sure, I'll do this real estate deal with you. Sure, I'll I'll help you buy cars. Sure, I'll run your security. And then the money disappears. Right. Well, exactly. Um, and I think so – like, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, so this is the thing. Like when people say, well, why can't you get out of the street? Why can't you get out of the life? And it's because the only people that – Folks know are the ones they grew up with. Those are the only ones they can trust. And those guys haven't made it. And so they're still perfectly willing to sell lean or whatever else or pop somebody in a drive-by or get into a fight at the club because their consequences for that for them are actually pretty low. Right. And, you know, there's no escaping it. Not unless you're willing to trust people who have a history of ripping people off. Like, and when I say people, I'm talking specifically about like industry, like people in the industry, like they're like the, like exploiting musicians is like, you go back to before Elvis. Like that was just a thing. That's just the nature of the business. And it's a problem. Well, so I, it's funny. So I've spent a lot of time, not a lot of time, but I've thought a lot about why, 
you know, the streets and rap are so intertwined. I think I think it's a lot of reasons. So, I mean, and just to give you a sense of how intertwined they are, like Jack Harlow, right? White dude, Lily, he's basically like the the the, the heir apparent heir apparent to Drake, like a, a sort of like the rapper who's approachable and, and like instead of rapping about like you know, because the, the the pivot that happened with with really it's Kanye, right? Like Fifty Cent and Kanye, it's graduation versus the massacre, and it's like is hip hop going to go in this direction of like. I'm a thug. I kill people. I've been shot nine times. Was it going to go in this direction of backpack, like, you know, college dropout, whatever. And I think that, you know, obviously then Kanye versus, you know, I'm not going to say birth Drake, but Lisa Drake and, you know, Jack Harlow and like Jack Harlow's DJ is on trial for murder. You know, like, so all like yeah. all these rappers um, and, you know, and his, the, the murder that he's alleged, like the story that people were saying online is that like that he was confronted by a woman for another murder that he had allegedly committed and then in being confronted, he then, you know, he allegedly killed that woman, but you know, it was on tape, like the, the shooting was on tape. So like, even like the, I mean, obviously there are certain rappers who don't have goons and stuff, but like, even like the, that's, that's the most Lily white sort of like bubblegum, you know, approachable white guy rapper is DJ is on trial for murder. So like they, so everyone me, keeps these people around them, but I understand why. Um, and you can, I'll, you can look at. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at this. I don't like, let me tell you, like, I'm early in the reporting on this, and this could take a left turn tomorrow. So just hear me. Like, I am not saying this is happening. I'm saying I'm looking at something. I am concerned that the industry, like, start with drill rap, but I think you can look broader than that, um, is deliberately cultivating musicians who have a propensity for criminal violence. Um well, as think, a marketing tool. So I think you're right. Like, I don't think that's like, I think you're right, but I think it's because it's what sells, right? We love authenticity. We love like, you know, we like rap is about, like, I'm going to even, I'm going to be honest. Like, I mean, I started, so I never really listened to Lil Durk like that. And then in 2020, he dropped just cause y'all waited too. And like, since then he's been like my most listened to rapper. Like I just I, like, Dirk just clicked for me. Like I, before that I was like a more of a, you know, listener to Drake, Future, really that. And like lately I'm guilty. I listen to a lot of street rap, 42 Doug, ESTG and Lil Durk. That's like my, my, heavy rotation and it's like once i found out that like dirk really is like involved in real like it the the lyrics hit even hard and even estg like you know his managers were you know locked like i'm not saying like i'm guilty of it too in the sense that like if i really cared about this stuff i would not listen to the music but not only do i listen to it but like the more authentic it is the more it's like oh like you know that you're really like you know it's real it does, so I, I think they're doing it, but I don't think it's because of any nefarious thing. I think it's just like, oh, like the like King Von allegedly he like killed like six people, you know. Like, and I think it's like it the music clicks, like the music just you know goes harder. You know, it's, it's like if someone's rapping about you know growing up in poverty and then you found they, they their dad, you know, they they grew up rich. Like it's 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 unfortunate, but I don't think it's. it's I think it's, it also raises yeah. a really essential moral question on behalf of the listener. And let me ask you, like, to what degree some of this stuff might happen or not happen if there wasn't a profit motive involved in making music about it? There's a lot of beef that is about nothing more than industry stuff. In fact, the YFN YSL thing started over industry beef. And never mind that there were a minimum of 50 shootings and probably two dozen dead people involved. It started over an argument between Rich Homie Kwan and Young Thug about whether or not they were going to continue their partnership. I don't know if I lost you. Am I still here? At this point, we had to take a break due to technical difficulties. Um, but I guess this is a good time to just uh, shout out our sponsors. 
we don't have any at the moment, but uh, I'm sure you will at some point. Also, I wonder, I mean, do people ever just like make up sponsors like, oh, you know, thank you to Apple. The show is brought to you by Apple and Disney and Microsoft and ExxonMobil or something. Um, anyway, uh, back to the conversation with George Cheedy. All right. So um, the powers that be that want uh, artists to uh, be murdered in the streets seems to have gotten to uh, my internet connection or something or your, or your microphone. Um, because we have, <laughs> we have to the- They're listening to us. Yeah, but so uh, for to fill in uh, to connect it, so you had asked me, um, you know, what I studied in college, and I said economics, and you said you're looking into the insurance companies. Um, so I want to get to that, but real quick to put a button on the last point, I think that you know a normie person is going to say, hey, well, why don't these rappers just get real security, right? Like, why don't they like why do they have the homies as security? And I, I will say, like having been around it a little bit, I kind of understand it. So one, like, so there's there's a certain artist who like when I was being LA and these random, you know, restaurants or whatever, like you would, you would always see their security before you saw them. Like their security would come in and like, you know, it is, um, you know, like they have proper security and yeah. but you have to understand that like to, 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 before you get to that point where you can afford a payroll of like Navy SEALs, you go through a long period where you're not making as much money. And so your security is going to be, you know, your homies, your cousin, your family. And also rappers, one, they people know where they're going to be, right? So someone someone knowing where you're going to be is a security threat because you have to be on the flyer. Like if you're going to a club, if you're going to a show, you're going to be on the flyer. So it's like, oh, this person's going to be at this place at this time. And guess what? Rappers also deal with cash. Like when you get you know the front end and back end of your show money, a lot of times you know you you get a deposit up front from the promoter, and the back end also the the promoter who often is him, him or herself in the streets. Um, that's a whole other conversation. Um, yeah. But you, know, you get the front end and the back end. The back end often comes in like front door money. You, know, you get the front end the deposit, but the back end is often in cash, like the money they got from the bar, from the door. So you've got cash. Um, people know where you're going to be. And then a lot of times you have jewelry, which as much as that's conspicuous consumption, like jewelry is part of your brand and your image and your likeness. And so that can kind of help, you know, in a way that, that that's a business expense. And so you have these things that people want to come and relieve you of. So you have to kind of have your, um, you know, in those early days, your, your squad. And then, you know, by the time it's like, okay, well, why don't you just get security by the time you're big? Well, the, the real move is to like move your goons into like business positions, which is what Jay-Z basically did, right? He moved his sort of, people he associated with when he was younger in some business positions within you know his legitimate businesses. Um, but you can't just cut them off entirely because now you have these people who know where you live, know your habits, know your patterns, have been with you for a long time, and you can't really just just uh cut you know cut them off completely. And then the other reason you can't just have like it's not enough to just, you know, oh, just get real security. There's certain things like real security is professional. They're not gonna, there's certain things they're not gonna do for you. Like if the club says, hey, no guns inside, your your real legitimate security is not gonna bring their guns inside. Um and they're also not gonna, you know, for the most part, for the most part, they're not well, gonna No, I'm just saying real legitimate security as often as not are also sworn officers. And yeah. Yeah, they can carry their guns wherever they want. That's true. They're, they're often sworn officers. That's true. But like you know, and then also there, there's certain things they won't do for you. Like I can talk about it now because it's public. Like Drum has talked. You know, Drake rapped about in that one song. Uh, you know, thought things were sweet. You know, till we cha cha slide, whatever it is. And so you know, Drum got beat up by kind of Drake's people, and Drum was saying, "Oh, like um, it was at a Coachella party in like 2013, uh, 2017. And I was there, um, and like it wasn't Drake. He's you know, Drum went on uh." Twitter and said, oh, um, 
you know, it was your security. It wasn't Drake's security. His security is very professional. It was, you know, it was the people around, you know, and I remember right. that, that was the day I realized, oh, I thought, you know, I, I was hanging around these Canadians and thought, you know, they have the, these little funny accents. I was like, oh no, they will, you know, <laughs> they, they will get to it. Yeah. And so, so, you know, that to put a button on it, I think that as much as like, like, it's not so easy as just, oh, just cut off like these people. Uh, but yeah, go ahead about the, the insurance thing. I want to hear about that. So that's the thing. Um, so it's interesting. There's a, there's a rumor. It's a theory. It's a conspiracy theory. And normally I am anti-conspiracy theory. In fact, I am currently anti-conspiracy theory. Well, yeah, 90% you're, anti, of you're anti-Kyrie and you're anti-Kanye, um, you know, so I would think. Yeah. Like, there's some value as a journalist in running things down in order to simply say this is not true. Um, I am approaching this with an open mind. Uh, Chicago drill rap conversation to some degree is about uh, whether or not music labels are insuring rappers against, you know, a, you know, a murder, like literally like here's insurance, life insurance. If you die, the life insurance pays off. There's a broader sort of context to that, which is the degree to which the music labels profit from one of their artists either killing somebody and being on trial for murder, like with the attendant notoriety, or dying because somebody killed them and watching their their portfolio increase. And you were referencing it yourself. There's this value to authenticity that becomes really undeniable if somebody's actually dead. Um, you can set up a lot of things, but you can't fake a murder. Um, but if it becomes clear to the music industry and to music executives that they can predict the increased value in the portfolio of an artist after their death, and they have a better sense of the likelihood of that artist dying, then you start getting into this weird adverse selection problem from an insurance perspective. Uh, the likelihood of you being killed, you're a at least middle class, potentially affluent, like college graduate without a history of personal violence. The likelihood, even though you are a young African-American man, which increases your odds because of the social stuff, the um, the likelihood of you being killed is probably one in a hundred thousand. Well, yeah, let's probably. keep it low. Yeah. Like, although, uh, I, like although given, given all those times I've had escaped from bullets, <laughs> maybe it's been yeah. a, little, a little higher, but hopefully not. I, maybe I stay maybe it's a little higher, but let's say it's a one in a hundred thousand. For me, it's a lot less. Like, because I'm far, far removed from most things. Like, unless I'm looking for it. Like, all else being equal, my odds are probably closer to one in a million. Which, by the way, are the odds of the average white person who's got a college degree, who's got a middle class income and is not doing drugs and is not engaged in other acts of violence. About one in a million. Um, the overall chances of somebody being murdered are about... 6.5 per 100,000, give or take. Um, like one in 15,000, give or take. Um, if you're younger, those odds go up. If you're poor, those odds go up. If you have a history of violence, those odds go up. If you have a connection to the drug industry, those odds go up. And, uh, and so you get some neighborhoods in 
Chicago, like Inglewood, where the murder rate there is closer to 100 per 100,000, about one in a thousand. Okay, that's still one in a thousand. That's still not likely. Right. There's a study by a uh, an anti-violence group called Ready, R-E-A-D-I. They've been working on an anti-violence program in Chicago. And they looked through um, neighborhoods in Chicago that were very high violence, that might have had like three or 400,000 people in them. And they were able to whittle a study group down to about 5,000 people, half of which got like enhanced services and half that didn't. The half that didn't, about one out of 11 people in that control group were murdered within so, 18 months. I mean, so it's funny. I don't, I don't know if it's this exact same study, but I remember a study, I think it was in Chicago, where they identified the people who are likely, like the highest likelihood to be murdered. You know, and it was just a series of data. It was like, you know, did you, I mean, the, I think the highest predictor was if you knew somebody, if someone close to you had also been murdered. Um, and right. then, it, you know, and so like they were able to identify these people and try and like, Basically, the direct services towards them because yeah, you. I mean, exactly. they're, they're, you know, it's like okay, are you come from a single parent home like that bumps it up. You know, are you you know? But the, the highest thing that bumped it up was did you know did somebody you're close or you're in a gang obviously, but right. did someone that you're close to get murdered? And they would target these people with services because they're you know these are the people who are the highest likelihood to to to, to be to be murdered. Um, so this is my point. Like as you look at this, you and I can sort of go through those factors and probably get that number, like the odds. You, we can find a selection group of people with very high odds of being murdered. I'm imagining at this point, music executives also know all of those factors, that they're probably better at it than you and I are, because they've got more experience looking at it than you and I do. Um, at what point do we start to ask the question about whether or not music executives are looking at those factors and then deliberately selecting artists to sign for the purposes of playing the portfolio, looking at, all right, if I've got it down to one in 30, like that 30th pays off all the losers. Right. Well, I mean, um, that's okay. So I thought you were going to go in a different direction, which I mean, and actually, I, I didn't really think this because you're too intelligent for that. But I thought, I almost thought you were going to go in the direction of like, oh, the, because the, there's this rumor like, oh, the labels are getting the artists killed and it's a sacrifice and, you know, oh, Empire. So I don't think they have to be doing anything intentional exactly I think they could, yeah yeah i think they but i think that there's this question there about to what degree they are selecting for it well i think like, i think i think they're selecting for authenticity right and i think i think but i also think even like so i think the labels are selecting for authenticity but even the rappers right like so like you know dirk is like yo i have this homie von who the whole hood knows has killed like three i mean allegedly three four five six people he should rap you know, like I should put my arm around him and, and get him, you know, so it's even like, I, I think, I think it's just like authenticity sells. And I think one of the things that you said earlier, which we didn't really explore is how much, so I, I spent a lot of time just, you know, I was bored on the, sh like, in, I think like 20, starting like maybe like 2019 or so, I got, I wasn't really on Reddit before like that, but I got on the Chiracology Reddit and it's like, yeah. you know, now, now there's a Chiracology, there's like a New York uh, version of that. There's, there's uh, an Atlantaology yeah, Reddit. Atlanta yeah. Oh, you're, you're, you're in that. I, I look at it because I, you Google yourself, you see it in there and you're like, oh God. Oh yeah. Um, you're in there all the time. Look, they fucking hate me well, in there because yeah. they think that I'm like some sort of spy. I'm just, oh, I oh. read everything. 
Okay, first of all, one of the dumbest things ever is the people who are on those subs and they're like, oh, you guys are snitching. It's like anything that's on this sub, the, like the police have, like, first of all, the streets know already, right? Like, the, like, these, like, people, they have informants, like, not just in the YSL thing, but just in general. Like, the, the Vaughn thing, the reason they didn't charge Vaughn is because people, you know, one of the reasons that he, people were scared to testify. Like, but the yeah. cops knew, like, they would come to the cops and say, oh, like, yeah, I, I identify it was King Vaughn, but I'm not going to say that on the stand. So, like, anything that's being said on Chiracology, new, like, the, the freaking cops have a file this thick. They, they know, they know everything. Well, I absolutely, like, as I go through case files, I see all sorts of references to social media. Like, I consist, especially Instagram. I mean, like, yeah, the rappers, they're, they're snitching on themselves. Like, they're, they're, they're snitching on themselves. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's one common thing. I mean, it's less so these days. I think people realize how, are starting to realize how idiotic it is. But the whole idea of, like, oh, like, you don't be posting that. I mean, so the Shirek Ozzy subreddit, it's funny. They like really document, like they know like, oh, this person killed that person. This, this, yeah. this people is, they're, they're up like, but the, the Atlanta one is still very much like, oh, like don't be talking about that in here. Like, you know, it's not like, and it's like, guys, like anything that anyone would, could be possibly posting in here, the cops have a file, you know, like the cops know, like someone has to like, yeah, absolutely you're, you're not, yeah. that the police are reading everything. If it's yeah. online and it's well, in public, I'm and not, even if it's not in public, they've got, you know they've they've got front accounts and they're looking at anything that anybody else can see, like and they're yeah. using it and it's and not, showing up in indictments. Yeah, and not just the social media piece, but like they, you know, they like witnesses come and talk to them. Th- those witnesses might not come and say it on the stand, you know, but like people people talk. Um, but yeah, no, those. I mean, but I do think like you know people will say like, oh, FBG Duck died because he released this. So there's two songs that he released shortly before he died. One was called Exposing Me Remix, and like the other one was called. Uh, dead b words um and like they were really i mean he was naming people i I think the whole chicago convention like i'm smoking on my you know i'm smoking on um you know let's say let's say a guy named johnny dies like i'm smoking on johnny pack you know i got that johnny in the air and then you know like the whole like naming specific dead people like like i think that they were gonna get duck anyway like he was a target but like i think when you start naming people and that like, their brothers are still alive, their family members are still alive. Like one of the people charged in the Oblo- in the murder of, of a duck, you know, his little brother was killed and was uh, years ago. And like, is one of the people who was being dissed repeatedly um, in this song. It's uh, I think C murder. His, his brother was, was named uh, Sheroid. And yeah. uh, you know, like, like, you know, so pe- like people like you're, 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 you're insulting people's, you know, you know, Dirk and these people will say, oh, we're going to, and even you know, Gucci got a lot of flack because he said, I'm going to stop dissing dead people. And people are like, well, you just got on versus and, you know, said we're smoking on Pookie Luck tonight. But I mean, I, people can obviously grow and change. So I, I think, I don't think we should throw that in his face. Like, um, one of the things with the YSL and the Young Thug case that I think people really just, I, I want to pound this over and over again. If Fonnie Willis decided, that's the district attorney here, decided, I'm not going to use any lyrics you know, in the trial at all. I don't like, I'm not going to submit that evidence or judge said, you can't do that. Nothing changes. I, say that again, please say that again. Cause people need to hear that. The police do not. And the district attorney do not actually need any of the song lyrics to gain convictions. I don't think based on all of the other evidence. That's oh no, they, they don't, they don't. I, I read the indictment. And also I think, you know, like, so I think that argument works both ways, though. It's like, well, if you don't need it, then don't put it in there. So I, I agree with you. But I think this whole, oh, like, stop using, like, first of all, people are like, oh, like, you know, you don't PC people using rock artist lyrics. It's like, yeah, rock artists aren't, like, actively engaged in, like, beef where people are dying. Like, it's not, and people are like, oh, like, Johnny Cash said I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. And it's like, that's completely, like, be, like, 
like literally look up and I love Dirk. Like look up Dirk's like friends and family and cousins and people who have died around him. Like it's, this, these are real and like, and then the, the other side, people who have died around them. Like these are real, like these are dozens yeah. of men, you know, black men. So I mean, it, it comes back to, I mean, you know, and I don't want to get super political, but like, well, no, we can. But like the people who say, oh, defund the police, defund the police. And it's like, if you were to defund the police, like what do you, like the people who are dying, like the people who are most getting shot and killed are like black men. Like if you're talking about Black Lives Matter, the people who are dying, you know, and like people can say, oh, police are always, well, it's stupid to say police don't really solve crimes. They, they obviously do, uh, but or they don't prevent them. They, they, they obviously do. Um, but like, you know, so you could say they're, they're ineffective. They could be doing a better job. But like, you know, if you were to strip that away, like the who would fill, fill, fill the power vacuum would not be positive people. And the people who would die, be, you know, would be people of color. It's like, I mean, it's, it's like these people have like, you know, when you listen to these artists and it's like R.I.P. Like, I, I think uh, G Herbo, Lil Herb, G Herbo, he had a, his, his, his album cover for one of his albums it was like 40 something friends of his who had died. Like no yeah. one who was that, who's in his mid twenties should know 40 something people. Um, like, on like, who like dead. If you took random, a random set of a hundred people in America, you would not find 40 people in there collectively that they were close to who they died, who had died like of violence. Like it's just the astronomical sum of those deaths. And that's the thing that I'm on about. Here it is. So I want to make sure, cause I wanted to make sure I was right. That like, he didn't just put random. No, it was, he was 24 and he had 50 deceased faces on his album cover. And he talks about the mental illness and PTSD, but yeah, like these people, and that's another piece of it. These people are messed up in the head because they like, I think about how messed up I am in that. Like if I'm in a club, I'm checking. Cause you know, like I said, I've been in the club now well, twice. And then out at a, you know, the friends thing one, you know, I've been in, three different kind of shootout shooting situations and then not kind of the two where, you know, when I got shot in my house. So like, I'm like, I, I, this, this LA fitness fight that happened, the guy, you know, I was trying to calm it down. Guy pushed somebody and then the guy's dad swung and hit him and then fist started flying. I was out of there so fast. I was, I was gone. I was in the parking lot. And even the, the time when I said I was, you know, in March or whenever uh, he was, in, uh, you know, that, that situation earlier this year, you know, it's funny the DJ, this guy DJ Eric, he, you know, Drake shots him out on a lot of his songs. After I left, DJ Eric got started yelling at me. He's like, because I came back, I dropped some stuff, and as I was running, so I, you know, I ran, got low the shots, and he's like, man, you know, people like he's like, people can't hear what's going on in like people inside can't hear what's going on outside. Like you should just, you know, people, you know, you took off running, and everybody started running. You messed up my whole night. I can't pay these security guards now because of you. And I'm like, I didn't shoot up the place. But he was he was yelling at me because I, you know, I, I started running. And you know how back. Well, I don't know if it's just black, but people are like, you see one person running, everyone starts running. So I, I took off. They well, actually, they, the security, they thought I wasn't involved because they're like, oh, this dude started running before everybody else. Like, let's search him. But um, yeah, like I'm, I'm out of there. And like even you know, I, I want to talk about the takeoff thing a little bit. Like that video was like deja vu for me because I was like, I've seen like you know people start drawing, somebody swings, especially in Houston, somebody swings, you swing and. I started to count down on my head five, four, like any of the, 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 and I want, I think it was exactly five seconds, uh, in that, in that Quavo takeoff video where they're talking about basketball, they're arguing, you know, let me, and I think, you know, I'm not going to put it on Quavo, but I think him saying, let me get out of here before I hurt somebody was, I'm not gonna say that was approximate cause, but like, you have to understand when you're around these, you know, dudes who are in the streets and they've, first of all, they're in the streets. They've also been around like any rapper comes and, you know, hangs out with the quote unquote, you know, that family mob ties, whatever, when they come in Houston, they've been around the biggest artists. 
So you're not gonna t- like they're not gonna look at you and be like, oh, that's Quavo. Like you're just another person. If anything, it's an insult that like, like if a street dude said, let me get out of here before I hurt somebody, that's one thing. But for a rapper to come and talk to you like that in your own city, um, I think that was a mistake. I think it's a similar thing to where you know where Tupac uh like he beat up Orlando Anderson and Orlando Anderson's like, yo, I can't get beat up by, beat up by, by a rapper. I'm a real life criminal. I'm a real life killer. Um, but yeah, I think that was such a sad situation. But I've seen it, you know, like where it just things just escalate there's no i like i almost was joking that rappers should like keep a conflict resolution person just in their entourage a person well, whose job it is whose job it is literally just to res- like you know hey hey guys and it's like that's what mike prince was doing in that video where he's trying to calm it down it's like hey you know if you listen to the audio he's talking about hey we're all family here like they're not going to disrespect you but don't disrespect them you know blah 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 like you know a, a, someone who could just calm down tensions because so many of these things like you said you know with uh it started this this luchi thing started over an industry thing like these dumb things um but yeah it, it's insane and so i was looking at the list of kind of people you know talk about the rappers who have died and i like i said i put it into two categories you have people who you know it just kind of were it was a fluke almost like they wrong place wrong time but then you have people Slim 400, um, Jay DeYoungin, FBG Duck, where it's a targeted hit. And like when these targeted hits, that's tit for its hat. Like your side, you've done something to me and now it's my turn to retaliate. And like, I wish the rappers could just all, because there's so much money. I mean, these rappers are making, I remember I saw the first time I ever saw the Migos in person, I was blinded by the amount of ice they had. And that was like 2016, probably. Like these sure. rappers are, you know, with, with streaming, with touring, these rappers are are making you know you have because nowadays with streaming you just need one hit song right like little pump you know uh what's that what's that the gucci gang gucci gang you know one hit song and that that's that song's printing money and it's like why like why are you guys killing each other there's a kind of toxicity in like the music industry culture and the street culture frankly like that takes time to unlearn and there's no active effort being made to solve that problem because so much money is being made from it. And that's the thing that I'm, I'm trying to get at here is none of this changes until the bag stops dropping. Like until it becomes clear that this activity is no longer profitable either because people are going to jail or because the music industry is unwilling to risk it by funding it. It's, oh. it's going to continue. I mean, speaking of that, like speaking of rappers shooting each other, Lil Durk was involved in a shootout at his own house. And, and like his house isn't like the nicest. It's like, I don't know the name of the neighborhood. You probably know, you know, if you know Atlanta, but like, you know, him and his, you know, his, I guess, then wife, girlfriend, baby mama, whatever, uh, like shot back at the assailants and like you I mean like these rappers are like it's like little Dirk probably gets a million dollars a show like half a million for a verse at this point in his career and it's like they should not be this level of violence they just they're just it, it, it shouldn't i don't know like how you know what's going to stop it but it's insane yeah and but that's the thing it's it's insane because it's profitable like normally like under normal circumstances uh, I mean, it's an economic thing. Like when there are negative consequences to a behavior, eventually the system realigns to make that behavior less likely. Right. But right and, now, like a, an act of violence, like ends up with higher record sales. And so there's no incentive 
for anybody involved here to really modulate modulate the behavior. Well, so um, I, uh, real quick, also, also one thing: the name of the neighborhood is is uh, um, was it the Chateau Elon in Brazelton? Oh my like, god, it's like a golf club. Yeah, People it's ran- about fifty miles outside of Atlanta. By the way, it's in it's on the border neck of sort of ruby red Georgia exurban like conservative Republican uh, Chateau Elon used to be owned by Kim Basinger at one point, like the yeah, entire I saw, town. I saw the pictures. It's like, it's like a beautiful, it's like a golf course. I think they snuck yeah. into, they allegedly snuck like, cause it's like a, it's like a gated community. I think they snuck in yeah, and like, they, so. they, they, they went through his backyard, but like the fact that he's having a shootout with his wife, you know, mother of his, you know, her girlfriend, whatever fiance at the time, I think, you know, mother of one of his kids, I, I'm pretty sure. Um, and like the nicest one, you know, some, I mean, it's, it, the, the, and like the violence is fought, like it just goes, but I guess like, I'm not a law of attraction person, but it's like, they're rapping about it. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're hyping it up, you know, they're dissing and it, it's like, I wish, cause I, I love Dirk. I don't want him to, you know, I, I would hate it. Imagine if, if he and his girl had died. Like when I, w- I woke up, a friend of mine was like, oh, like take off. And first she told me to take off. Take off and Quavo got killed. Um, and but then she's like, Oh no, you know, and I started getting on Twitter. I was like, I, I thought I was having a dream. Like I woke up in the middle of the night and you know, I thought I was having a dream. And I said, I look, I'm like, oh, like take like wow. And it was in Houston, and I'd been I was in Houston, and like, you know, I saw the people like I like a friend, I was like, I'm surprised you weren't there. Cause like, I I'm not as much anymore. I, I I'm in the house, you know, but I like I would, you know, like Houston, like that family, you know, the whole, you know, they like they, they, that's you know, a lot of the events that are in that sort of energy you know, entertainment, music, whatever scene, you know, they're, they're, they're tapped in. Um, and then this was the whole check-in culture. I remember my friend Ghost, who I mentioned earlier, um, he explained that checking in, like, it's not, it's not always an extortion thing. It's also just like, hey, like, come, and like, this person's going to give you the lay of the land. They're going to tell you where to avoid. They're going to make sure, you know, they're going to give you guns and, because you can't fly with, you know, guns. Uh, right even on a private jet really, but you know, like, so they're going to give you the guns, they're going to give you the weed. They're going to kind of let you know, oh, don't associate with, you know, don't go here. You know, they, they, so it, I mean, it's all like, it's just so intertwined with the streets. Like I had a friend who worked with a uh, Bieber, but he also worked with um, like rappers. So I remember him saying that like, yo, like he loves working with, he hates working with rappers or like people like that. Cause he, he said he loves working with pop arts. Cause like, he doesn't have to worry. Like if you're managing Taylor Swift, you don't have to worry about like crap. If I go to if I when I go to the track, I gotta pay. You know, I gotta pay trick trick his money. You know, allegedly. You know, I'm not, not. You know, but like the like the each kind of city has their sort of OG, and like you gotta kind of go and kind of pay them respect and pay them. You know, money. You know, and like so in Atlanta. I will say this: there is no nobody owns Atlanta. Like this much is clear to me at this point. Yeah, I heard it's Monica. Like, I, heard, I heard Monica's the one they check in with. Everybody says that, and that's not true. Like there's know, no it's a there's joke, no one person. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, um, I, I thought people were saying it as a joke. I was saying it as a joke. Yeah, um, I think so. Uh, like, so I'm going to have to bounce it about five minutes. Uh, like, is there anything we didn't cover that you'd want to talk about? Um, is there anything you want to? I mean, well, first of all, where, where can people find you? I guess. So the, the key thing is look for my work at the Atlanta Objective. That's Atlanta Objective. The Atlanta Objective. Dot Substack. Dot com. Um, but I'm also writing semi regularly for Rolling Stone, and a lot of the YSL coverage is going to end up at Rolling Stone. Oh wow! Um, the uh, uh, we're working on uh, a docu series. Uh, it's still very preliminary, but we're working on a docu docu series for HBO about that'll start with YSL and then sort of look more broadly at the connection between the music industry and violent crime. 
do, do uh, you listen do you listen to like i mean because you have like a moral because i feel like i do listen to this stuff like i'm I'm part of the problem i guess like do you do you listen to it or do, are you are you like morally opposed I had to it? before before look if it was post wu-tang clan before i got into this then i needed a map uh the uh i'm i am i'm pretty old school uh the um who's your favorite the, rapper was, what who's your favorite rapper oh uh right now um I go back and forth between uh, Logic and Future. Oh. <laughs> although, like, although I, I have to say, Tyler, Tyler the Creator is just amazing. Yeah, yeah. Although it's funny because like he he said so many crazy wild things. You know, he has that arc of like kind of having said all these crazy insane things, and now he's kind of like I feel like people who are Tyler the Creator fans will like are the same people who will like cancel you for like using the wrong accidentally using like the wrong pronouns. Like, wait, have you like listened to his music? Like if you listen to like his early stuff, like he's like it's it's the most no. cancelable, you know, whatever. Oh, oh yeah, at least no, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, so he has this like white I mean, fan. He has this white fan base, and it's like that. That's kind of skews, you know, a little bit progressive-ish. I, I just need weird. I need a lot of weird. Like I am not interested in conventional shit. What about um, favorite artists overall? Like just in all all genres. Oh, in well, I I, I couldn't. It'd be like choosing a child. I can't do it. Okay. Okay. Um, I guess what's the work you're most proud of? Is it? I mean, yeah. What is it? Well, weirdly, it's not the YSL stuff. Um, I wrote a, a lengthy piece that I actually need to two things actually in the last year uh, that I need to follow up on. One was uh, sort of the anatomy of a trap house, like the uh, so the the last trap house in um, uh, Capital View, which is a neighborhood in Atlanta was closed down last year, about a year ago. Uh, and it's the sign of gentrification, like that there are no more trap houses in Capitol View. Um, well, we're going to have Massive history. Know, yeah, the, the next time we talk, we're going to talk, I, I remember I've seen v- pictures of Atlanta where it's like, the gentrification is so crazy. You'll have like a trap house next to like a condo. You'll have like, yeah. I've seen like literally like on the same street, like side by side, like a, a, a fancy $400,000 house, $400,000 house. Trap house with shootings, $400,000 house, $500,000 house. Uh, but the, the way it happened and all of the rest of it was just super interesting. And basically what I did was I, I saw a murder. Uh, like there was something on TV about a murder. And somebody had spray painted the words murder game in the street in front of the house. And like, it was just this one-off thing in the news. And I'm like, why is nobody following up on that? That's a super interesting detail. What the hell happened there? And so I spent six weeks, eight weeks more, like really diving into what happened with this one murder, this random, like nobody else gives a damn about this case. I'm going to take a look just to show what an in-depth report on a murder that is not otherwise sensational would look like. And it turned out that there was this whole backstory that's super interesting about how it like the gentrification in the neighborhood and the last holdouts from the street life and you know this trap house and how that trap house worked and PPP loans and oh, God knows how, but it's fascinating so I got to follow up on that because they found the murderer about two months ago and he actually wants to talk to me the guy who is accused of murdering the fellow he must, is he sitting must have- in a jail cell. He must have a terrible lawyer because you're really not supposed to talk to anybody. But um, oh yes, yeah. and I told him that. I told his lawyer that. I said okay. I want to talk to him, but you should probably stop me. 
Um, <laughs> well, that, that's a, well, that's a, that, you're a very honest journalist. Well, okay. As the, I wrap the, it up, is this thing that's running right now on face on Twitter on my Twitter feed, which is Neon Flag. Um, I wrote a very lengthy story about the death of uh, well, she she wasn't dead at the time, uh, uh, a homeless woman who was just profoundly troubled, mm. um, and it was a look at like how the mental health problems in Atlanta had broken down and how people were not getting help. She died two days ago, six hours before I could go talk to her again. Oh, um, that's sad. And like I, that story helped move legislation and I'm hoping it will move more legislation. Well, that's good. Well, I'm going to leave some stuff for us to talk about next time, but one, I, I, I need to be more empathetic about homelessness. Cause I remember I went to San Francisco, uh, like I yep. said recently and like, it was, my, you know, I've been, I've been there in like almost a decade and like the homeless, like it made me like, I, it looked like every kind of like whatever, like the most Fox news, like hardcore Republican, what, what they would say that, you know, Pelosi and San Francisco is a hellhole. It was that bad. Um, oh, I was, I, I was yeah. there a couple of years ago. I spent some time in the tenderloin just looking around. Yep. That area. It was that. And then the next thing for, I, I, I hope you look into the takeoff things. I feel like there's, I feel like there's, you know, like there hasn't, I mean, as of now, there hasn't been an, an arrest and there's so much video and you know that's kind of surprising. Although I do think that it might be a situation where like both sides are shooting. So like, what do you like? Who do you charge and with what? Especially in a state like Texas, where you know, the gun, you know, it's, it's pretty gun friendly. Um, so here's the reason should- I'm not going to look at the takeoff thing very closely, unless there's a much more connected Atlanta tie to whoever is involved. Everybody and their brothers looking at the takeoff thing, like that's getting covered. There are investigative journalists who care about that death, and they're looking at it. I need to look at the deaths that are important that nobody else is giving a well, damn about. That was my last thing. Look, I mean, this is 2018. The, look into this Kenny Lou thing. It's a very like, it, you know, it, he was a kind of local rapper. He was on the cusp. Like, I feel like him and the, he, I feel like he would have been the next. I'm biased, but I, I think he could have been the next sort of like baby gunna. Like he he had really good music. He was kind of you know bubbling. And like after he died, people were trading his freaking unreleased songs like Pokemon cards around here in yeah. Houston. And there's a Lucci tie alleged. Lucy tie in that everyone was like, oh, like he and his, you know, it was like, cause basically he died on the 27th of 20, November 27th, 2018, but his two friends, one died on the 25th of 2017, uh, another died on the 26th of 2017, cause they were, they were all shot together and then one died immediately, one died the next day and then one died. That's, that is interesting. I, I, I'm going to take, a, I'll take a whack at that. And like, and if you look at all the, his songs and stuff, people are like, oh, what happened? How did he die? And people are really like, oh, well, wife and Lucy put a, put, put money on his head because he, like, it's like, like, I'm not saying anything that's not already on, on and, and I'm not putting that on Lucy. Like, I don't know. He has enough legal stuff. Like, I'm not saying that's true. Like, allegedly, Kenny Lou had a lot of, a lot of issues in the streets. Um, so much that my, when he died, everyone was like, oh, yeah, we told your, you know, ghost to stop hanging out with him um but i'm legitimately very, concerned that she's gonna get killed in jail well they, they they've tried but i also don't think they, they want to make things work i mean they've allegedly tried but i also don't think they want to make things worse for themselves but yeah we'll have to i mean it's it's all i mean these people are multi-millionaires stop killing stop killing each other please i like your music <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, been a pleasure by the way right. i'm really grateful to have had a chance to really talk through some of this yeah, no, thank you. I'm, I look forward to uh, releasing it and uh, just keeping in touch for sure. You bet. All and right. we will. Yeah, for sure.